This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. We're live. Welcome to the 61st episode uh, in class with Dr. Greg Carter, largest Africana studies classroom in the world. Mm. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening all over. And thank you, uh, classmates, for, for being here. And thank you, Dr. Carr, for your time and your brilliance. No, no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am so glad to be here. I, uh, you said that we, we got some folks we didn't even know were listening in, been listening oh. in, huh? So some people may not know, but I do this little radio show on Sirius XM, you know, Monday. All over the known universe. I mean, you know, three hours a day, you know, and it, it, you, you're in such a blinders, you know, you, you, you got your blinders on. And so the first person pops in, you know, and I was excited to speak with him because we just seen that versus with Earth, Wind and Fire versus the Isley Brothers. So I'm like giddy and Philip Bailey pops in and he's like. I'm fanning out right now. I can't believe I'm talking to you. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> Somebody behind me, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he said, that's a great car and you on Saturdays. Yeah, so I was like, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, every Saturday, my wife and I, Valerie, we tuned in. And let me just say happy birthday, Philip Bailey. Happy the birthday, brother. Singer. Uh, happy birthday, as he said. Happy birthday, happy birthday, yes. uh, Philip Bailey. Uh, God bless you. Thank you. Uh, it, it warmed my heart in a way that I didn't expect because it was it's humbling. You know, it's like, wow, people right. actually watching this. And then I had uh, LaChance. From, yeah. yeah, from the color, you know, Broadway, Tony Award winner, same energy. And then the cap, Tonya Pinkins, Tonya Pinkins, the another Broadway child. So <laughs> she was like, oh, my God. And then she she backslapped me. Right. Because she said, you know, she has a new movie out called The Red Pill. And she's got all this allegorical stuff in there. And it's horror genre. And she said, there's one piece in there that I know only intellectuals like Dr. Carr. Would I, and I was like, and I, then I got out my feelings because I was like, okay, you, she's right. She's right. The man is brilliant. No, she, she was all of us. It's there for all of us to get. No, no. Oh, Listen, there's so much stuff I don't know that I'm happy to be here to pick up any breadcrumbs you drop and Me anybody you drop. So thank you. Well, no, thank you. We were all dropping breadcrumbs, Prof. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about it. In fact, it's so funny. I was listening to some folks talking this this uh, this week and engaged in a conversation and one thing about the teachers that probably we, we both all of us love and respect the most beginning with our mothers happy early mother's day to everyone um is that you know, there's a level of humility the more you think you know the more you know you don't know and so you know the idea that we exist in a time and space where um, there's so much information. There's so much stimulation. The technology has created, uh, I guess, the allegory many people use is the fire hose. We just get hit with this fire hose all the time. To be able to sort through any of that and try to trace out pathways is a very daunting task. It requires reflection. It requires us sitting and thinking. And even today, as we talk about critical race theory, this, this, the idea is that we exist in time and space. And whether we're aware of it or not, that that time and space is going to continue. And so what we've been trying to do, that's why I say, man, brother Bailey, man, when I told, I, I tweeted back to him. I say, man, many a morning, 
before I went in the classroom, I played I write a song for you because when he has that lyric, you know, sounds they never dissipate, they only recreate to another place or time. Man, when he says that, that's what we, I mean, what we say, what we do echoes through time and space. And when and that line right there sounds they never dissipate, they only recreate to another take place and time. In other words, everything that has been done by human beings echoes. They found they found a they found a little three-year-old boy, a three-year-old child in East Africa, and announced the finding this week. The burial is about 80,000 years old. It's the oldest burial they found so far in Africa. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that a lot of research, archaeological research, hasn't been done in Africa. It's absolutely white nationalist and racist. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is don't disturb the dead. You know, now if you come back in a thousand years and dig up George Washington and check for them teeth, then I'm good with you digging up our ancestors in the Nile Valley. But I mean, that's another way. I mean, you know, that would be to me, that would be an African studies way of looking at it. But the reason I bring it up is because that little human. That little human who did not live to adulthood, who was buried very, very carefully, whose knees were folded against the chest, who was buried on the right side. Uh, they think there was a pillow underneath the, the baby's head, the child's head, signals the fact that our ancestors were well aware not only of burial practices, but they had some very strong ideas about the nature of death, the nature of transition. And when we and when you know when Bailey sings songs, uh, sounds never dissipate; they only recreate to another place in time. That's true of anything that we have left. And so here we are in a bit of a conversation with people who were here eighty thousand years ago on the continent of Africa. And uh, a little bit later, we can even connect. Well, we can do it right now. I mean, when people start talking about critical race theory, it's a broad, amorphous term. It's a label. It it could mean a whole lot of things, which means it could mean nothing. And and I'll get much more specific about that in a second. But it, it, here at the beginning, I just wanted to 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 raise that idea because when when our culture keepers, and for you have engaged in conversation with several of them, several major culture keepers from different generations, in this week about what you know narrative is doing and what we're doing on Saturdays you know inviting people into that space where we really get deep into these conversations then begin to translate it into action and building you know that's just a testament to the fact that our people are hungry to tap into those vibrations because those vibrations exist whether we tap into them or not so I just again want to thank you because this is this is keep tapping and you know we've always known that this was important yes and you know, as you mentioned, the fire hose and and the noise, the the noise. So I tuned it out. I, I uh, started my fast of of cable news and every other kind of you know. And I, I threaten people if you tag me in on some nonsense on social media, I will block him and I will. Why did you wait? <laughs> I will block or mute you. And it has been a beautiful week, Doctor Carr. Mm-hmm. You a couple of times. I've been on yeah. the radio. I have my classes, yeah. and I'm kind of stressed because <laughs> whatever's happening in the world, whatever voter suppression is going on, it's already happened. The time to have done something about it. Anyway, um, no, that's right. That's right. And, and on a loop to constantly talk about the trauma that we're experiencing doesn't change the trauma. No. So no. let's change the trauma. Let's no. change the narrative. And, and we're cha- and in changing that narrative, we're also addressing how to deal with that. And I'm really, really, really just so blessed to be able. I mean, this is commencement season. Mm. Last week, this week, uh, while we're here right now, 
You know, Brian, Brian Stevenson is addressing about 900 undergraduate students, formerly undergraduate students at Howard who have now graduated. Congratulations to all the graduates this season. And between where we are right now and this time next month, uh, the high school students will be coming. But the beautiful thing about this space is uh, there's no commencement. And that's the way we should be thinking about learning. There's licensure. You need a piece of paper to go move around, get a job, open your business, do whatever you're going to do. But the process of learning is lifelong. So in, in us jailbreaking the concept, especially in a moment when people are going to try to profit. In fact, they've already profiteered from this plague that we we entered and are now emerging from uh, prayerfully. And if we continue to do what we're supposed to do, uh, we have been in many ways revived, revived in terms of thinking about the battles before us, how we can tap into our memory in order to to transcend some of the foolishness and then continue in this work. Uh, so uh, that, that that fast you're talking about, Prof, that's, you know, I, I haven't watched what I call, you know, mass commercial news slash entertainment media. I haven't watched it in so long. Uh, it's been several months since I watched the show from beginning to end, actually longer than that. I don't think I've watched more than 10 minutes of any news show on broadcast cable in quite some time. If I catch snippets of it, it's usually uh, on social media. Uh, and that's why I do want to just very quickly and not even spend, uh, in fact, let me put my little sand timer on here now, cause I'm going to spend with a minute on it. Somebody asked on social media and thank you everyone who reaches out, who interacts. Uh, I had a few more papers to grade. I got to the end of that season. It's always brutal. This period is professor Hunter and I, you know, this is, this is grading time for us. Right. So, uh, having emerged on the other side of that though, I'm looking forward to interacting a lot more Twitter, social media, and people asking to answer questions, making observations, sharing information. And one link that was shared, um, I guess it was yesterday, somebody shared a little bit of a snippet of a conversation between Charles Blow and Ben Jealous, uh, former uh, um, executive director of the NAACP, on uh, the se Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, which is moot for all intents and purposes. It's intact, but moot because in 2013, Shelby County versus Holder, um, the Supreme Court destroyed Section 4B of the uh, Voting Rights Act. And I'll just, just for very quickly refresher for folks who won't get too deep into weeds, because we're going to talk a lot about the law with critical race theory, and but, but not so heavy. In fact, uh, Professor Hunter, as I was thinking about this this week, we talked, you know, in the middle of the week and then this all everybody's talking about critical race theory. We've seen it everywhere. So, you know, let's let's talk about that on Saturday. And, and I thought about it, I said, you know what? This is a perfect this is a perfect topic. So for those of you who haven't uh, signed up for narrative, uh, whether you do it for the whole year or you can do it month by month, there's a month by month option. Come on over there because you, we, we can. And, and you and I are going to spend more time there uh, yeah. than on social media. So. Mm -hmm. There's a there there's burgeoning groups of folk. They're having conversations. You and I are going to join as soon as our schedule frees up a little bit, which will be right. for me in a couple of weeks. You are you are done after yeah. this uh, week coming up, and I'm jealous. But yeah, we'll be in there doing that. But we also had a conversation that will be showing up a narrative on the uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So all the little yeah. groups in there, y'all, comic book folk. We, oh yeah. We, we had a nice conversation that will be. Yeah. That's right. So, yes, definitely. All right. We so, talked this week. That, no, 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 no. That's good. That, we talked this week about that. Right. And that's exclusively on narrative. And, and, and that and that one's worth. I mean, we've talked about it a couple of times here. 
But over there, we really got a chance to stretch out. And it, it's very interesting and important. There's been a lot of conversation. And it's funny how the conversations we have, you know, we, we, we're mirroring some conversations that are taking place other places. We're influencing conversations that are, people are having. And that's what you really want. You want ultimately everybody to be in dialogue and then everybody to act collectively because we're not going to get out of this acting as individuals. So that, that, that's very important. No. So yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so facts indeed. So, yeah. So we get over narrative. I mean, it'd be interesting to convene some folk who have been working through this question of voting rights and act who've been doing this work on the ground. I mean, many times you've talked to a. Uh, to uh, Clifford Latosha, and I saw uh, Latosha on uh, BNC on Black News Channel for a second. But anyway, very quickly, um, in 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States, doing the job of white nationalism, uh, um, kicked the teeth out of the Voting Rights Act by kicking out the uh, formula in Section 4B that is used that was used for determining uh, whether or not states or uh, districts, voting districts, had engaged in discriminatory practice, racial discrimination. And just for, uh, you know, this this usually go, this used to go around every few years. They're, they're going to take our votes, our voting rights away. The right to vote for U.S. citizens was established with the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Uh, it was burnished subsequently by the 19th Amendment, although if you read, as my colleague, Belithia Watkins Beatty, always reminds us, a brilliant sister, one of the most brilliant. In fact, I'm going to come back to Belithia in a second. We start talking about CRT. Um, as she reminds us, there's no gendered language in the 15th Amendment. It doesn't say men. Uh, so, you know, the idea that you would even need a 19th Amendment, again, speaks to interpretation. It doesn't speak to a plain language reading of, of, of the statute. But the right to vote is firmly established in that 15th Amendment in terms of not being able to deny the right to vote. That having been said, Congress is then authorized. In fact, I search around. I usually keep a copy of the Constitution around. Uh, as Gil Scott Heron said, the Constitution, a noble piece of paper. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's all it is uh, until you put teeth in it. But at any rate, Congress is authorized then to pass legislation to uh, uphold, protect, defend those rights. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, was a, a piece of legislation that is designed uh, to uh, enhance, protect, defend the right to vote in the 15th Amendment, as well as equal protection under the law in the 14th Amendment. And so what you saw, what you see then is the, the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. It was reauthorized in 1970 by Congress, reauthorized in 1975, 1982, and in 2006. It was uh, it after it was reauthorized in 2006. These are by overwhelming majorities, so-called bipartisan majorities. 2006, uh, it would not it was not scheduled to be revisited again until 2031. We still have another decade before Congress would revisit. And why would they revisit the Voting Rights Act? They would revisit the Voting Rights Act because when they passed it in 1965, the idea was there would come a day when you would not need enhanced protections, enhanced scrutiny. And so uh, my sand timer went out. Let me do five more minutes on this. And then I'm looking at it. I'm trying to because I don't want to spend much time on this. But it's important because somebody asked it and people are thinking about it. And we see all these white nationalists. I love the little child uh, they sent up on the podium in Texas uh, yesterday, a day before, uh, to bring up the idea of voting rights as protecting, what do you call it? The purity of the ballot box. And then and then the older white dude on the other side asked this fool testifying surrounded with this other ring of little children and says, uh, you know that language came out of the white primaries and Jim Crow. He was like, oh, no, I, I wasn't aware. 
of blood. Yeah, that language came directly out of when they said the purity of the ballot box. What they're talking about then in the in the post-reconstruction era in Texas is what they mean today when they say voter integrity. By voter, they don't mean you. <laughs> you understand? By voter, they mean when they say uh voter integrity, what they're saying is, well, I'm sorry, when they say election integrity. They're saying control of the ballot box. We want to control. That's why all these statutes, which are basically, they schemed this together last December. Alec had a meeting, the American Legislative Executive Council. They met Ken Blackwell, that Negro from Ohio. If you remember John Kerry versus George Bush in 2004, there's still people who say they stole Ohio. But Ken Blackwell, the black dude, was the Secretary of State in Ohio. Uh oh, let me not get too far off this. Anyway, they met in December to consider, they put together a task force and they were drafting model legislation. That's what they do with Alec. So when you see a bill in Georgia and the bill in Florida looks like the one in Georgia and the one in Texas looks like the one in Florida and Georgia, that's because they drafted it all together. Hans von Spakowski, which is uh, one of the evil genius minds who was involved in the, in the North Carolina rob, a, a rob so nefarious that even the courts, as they are tilting rightward, said, this is too ball face. This is surgical. That was the language the Supreme Court used. But at any rate, uh, in, in trying to eliminate black voters, not white voters, particularly black voters. But uh, in Texas, when he said that, he said, you know, that language was from Jim Crow. They were trying to stop black voters. And so today, when you hear them say, protect the integrity of the election, what they mean is these, these, these laws they're passing in these states take away local authority. All the local election uh, officials in, in Florida, many of them Republican, argued against the bill they just passed in Florida. What are you doing? No, because we're, we're taking local control. See, the, the white nationalists love to talk about federalism and states' rights until they don't control what's going on, at which point they want to come heavy with the government. So that's what all these bills do. In Georgia, they're going to want to take it away from the people who count the votes in Atlanta and Macon. They count the, count the votes in Augusta and bring it to the state level where they still have control. The other piece is when they say um, voter confidence. By voter confidence, they mean white voter confidence. So when the young cat said the purity of the ballot box, that's what they used in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. What they say today is voter confidence. When they say voter, they're not talking about you. So that's it. Um, now, let me finish up on the Voting Rights Act. They got about two minutes left based on the sand. So let me do this very quickly. When they passed the Voting Rights Act, it was because so many of those southern states had so obviously engaged in all this stuff, all this discrimination, that they, the, the Voting Rights Act was put in place to stop that stuff from happening. And what it meant is that if you fell under the formula for determining whether or not you have been doing this for a long time under Section 4 and 4B, that meant that you, before you could change any laws to try, you know, you had to get pre-clearance. That's what they call it. That plea clearance is Section 5. In other words, that's the, what they say, okay, you got to clear this with the federal government. The Supreme Court in 2013 kicked the teeth out of Section 4 by saying, and this is John Roberts arguing all that stuff for white nationalists on the Supreme Court. He said they, they said Congress exceeded its authority to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendment because this only applied to some states and not all states. It wasn't equal in terms of sovereignty and federalism. Some of that language John Roberts ripped right out of his mentor, not Jegna, mentor. Uh, William Rehnquist, that racist who was suppressing the vote in Arizona back in the day and pulled it right out the 1940s and 50s. Federalism, the whole thing of sovereignty, equal sovereignty. That, by the way, is what the, the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act is supposed to fix because that will apply to all the states taking them, taking away the federalism argument, the sovereignty argument, although it, I'm sure it'll be challenged in court if it even passes. Shout out to Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, saw white nationalists hiding in the Democratic Party. But at any rate, the Voting Rights Act then when they kicked the teeth out of the formula for determining who would fit 
that made section five unnecessary because now you don't have to get preclearance. So there's no there's no application of the preclearance formula. And that's when they let the flood loose. So what Ben Jealous was saying, finally, as the sand begins to run out almost about 30 seconds, what Ben Jealous was telling uh, Charles Blow the other night is that some of these shenanigans that Georgia did, for example, as Georgia is doing, builds on shenanigans they did when Barack Obama was president and Eric Holder was attorney general because they couldn't change any laws in during that period before Shelby County versus Holder unless they sent it to the federal government. And when they sent it to the federal government, the attorney general approved it. So why would they do that? This is what Blow was saying. Why would they do that? And then Jealous is like, I don't know, but here's the trick. And this is a whole thing on narrative. Maybe we'll do a whole thing. There's a Shaw versus Reno line of, of cases out of North Carolina. Here's the question. Ask yourself. Would you rather have majority black districts? This is section two of the Voting Rights Act. Story for another day. Congressional districts, when you draw in the lines, or would you rather have some majority non-white districts? They call them majority minority districts. Some majority non-white districts. And then maybe some others where blacks or other non-whites are the plurality. So you might not be the majority, but you're a third. You're 25%, you're 38%. Enough, in other words, to influence the elections and force both parties to fight for your vote. This is what Sandra Day O'Connor and them were arguing. When you look at the Supreme Court, look at the, the opinions and the concurrences. That is the question at the heart of why you would pre-clear something that is creating on paper looks like majority black districts. But what you're doing is pulling these black people out of these other districts so you can make them safely white nationalists. I'm sorry, uh, Republican at this stage in, in American history. So that's that's why you would say, well, why would they do that? Well, maybe they thought we're preserving the black representation. And then the pushback is, yeah, but you're also ensuring that these people get in the way with packing everybody. You have a damn 98 percent black district and they pulled all the black people out, drove these crazy lines. And that's how you keep running this game in Wisconsin and in, in Florida, in Georgia and so forth. So that's enough on that. Um, just to answer that. And thank you for sending that in social media, because, I mean, that's important because people don't understand. And no, they can't take your right to vote away. That's in the 15th Amendment. Now, well, I said it can't take it away on paper, the Constitution, a noble piece of paper. But none of that stuff means anything until you make it stand up in the real world, which is really the critical race theory conversation. Um, a, a couple of other things we should mention since we've been uh, since we were together last week. Um, we know, of course, like I said, happy Mother's Day. And that's great. You know, Mother's Day tomorrow. I call my mama. Everybody call your mom. But you uh, you should know that, uh, you know, Julia Ward Howe, who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic back in the 1870s, she was the first one to say it should be a Mother's Day. But it's interesting because, you know, black people take Mother's Day very seriously. Some of y'all look, don't nobody risk their life out there, please. <laughs> we going to brunch or something, have brunch at the crib or outdoors or something like that. Get a get a collective mother's brunch going or something. But, you know. But but the actual Mother's Day as we know it is really a child of uh, the 20th century. Ann Jarvis, they called her Mother Jarvis, uh, was one of the, uh, the the founders back in the 1860s as well, 1870s. But her daughter, Anna Jarvis, uh, moved to Philadelphia when she was in her late 20s. And she started a Mother's Day kind of committee. And on that committee were prominent Philadelphians like John Wanamaker. I used to pass the marker every day when I would go downtown Philly. You passed a marker in front of what used to be Wanamaker's uh, department store. Then it was Macy's and so forth. My, Wanamaker, the first department store in the country. Uh, they started it. And then around 1907, they said, OK, let, let it be the second Sunday in May. That's where it comes from. But guess what? Wanamaker and them and his buddies realized we can make money off this. Very quickly, it went commercial. 
And guess who tried to get Mother's Day abolished? Anna Jarvis. <laughs> Anna Jarvis said, "What y'all doing?" They came up with a credit, oh, a credit card. Yeah, you need yes. a credit card to pay for them, right? They came, right, you know, they came with a, a, a greeting card scheme. She said, "Greeting cards are for people too lazy to write a simple note." to the woman that gave you your life. I mean, she went off up to the 1940s till her death. She tried to get Mother's Day revoked because she said, these these people, including my man's, the, the, the department store man, they done figured out how to profit off this. What's the moral of the story? Every ritual we have in a capitalist society, they look and figure out a way to make money. How you gonna have a Labor Day sale on the day that's supposed to stand for the power of organized labor? I mean, so anyway, it's just funny. I just wanted to mention that before. (laughs) I have been vehemently against all of the holidays. My parents will tell you that. I call my mother every day, by the way. No question. Go ahead, Proud. No, I mean, you know, since the pandemic, because she wasn't wasn't listening early on. So I'm going to call you every day to make sure you're staying in the house because I need you to be alive. But, Mm. you know, the, the notion that we have to be forced to honor our mothers with a holi- with a damn holiday is like so sick on so many levels. We do it because nobody wants to be shamed, you know, and all of the pictures and you you want to post online what you've done to for your mother. But you know, anyway, go ahead, continue. I no, I'm no, 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 I'm glad you look, this is why we're here. This is what you this is what you've always been saying. Here it is, right here. Learn, create, grow. Meaning what we were learning, part of learning is remembering. Now, you put all of us to shame, including me, that don't call their mothers every day. No, you know, was, I needed my mama to be here, and she's a little hard-headed. So I was like, I'm that's not all right. We all need them, and we know that we never even lose them. You went to Walmart? What you do? You know, like, I... <laughs> yeah, what you doing? <laughs> and then I just kept going. But so, let, so did Africans have a tradition for how we how we oh. serve our mothers? Wow. And was, it, was it a ritual? Was it an annual thing? Oh, no, no, no. It, it was what you just said. I think this is one reason why you see people of African descent take Mother's Day so seriously. In many ways, uh, for a lot of human beings, but I mean, we're talking now about black folk. You know, this is our governance structure, looking at those conceptual categories in African states who are Africans to each other. Um, we just we just uh, what, uh, what would the kids say? Put it on fleck or, you know, we just you know, we just go out. We go all out on Mother's Day because it's like an enhanced expression of what many black people do every day. That's exactly right. And so the ritual just assumes uh, another level. We just take it to another level. And, 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 and very quickly, I mean, you know, it's interesting as we're thinking about this, by the way, you know, we have these live conversations we're over here. Um, and often what we talk about ends up remixing the title of what we came in to talk about. So I expect Mother's Day might get in this a little bit, <laughs> but, uh, but in terms of a Mother's Day, no, no, there's no spe- I mean, there are ritual days, of course, throughout the, the, the human culture. But when you look at, for example, and I just use a very couple of very quick examples, because we got Dr. Beatty geared up on the narrative side and he, his knowledge, not only in teaching Egyptian language, but studying Egyptian culture. He's part of that configuration of African people who have been doing that in an unbroken line since the 19th century. So he could really get into this. Uh, one of the words for mother, in fact, the principal word for mother in ancient Egyptian language and hieroglyphs was moot. We, we spell it M-U-T. We don't know how it sounded. You know, you can look at the cognate languages, try to figure it out, um, Coptic and others, and then the languages spoken in the Nile Valley. But moot. Moot means mother. Uh, formation, it's a bird figure when you see it. Moot. Uh, they, they would define a bird as a vulture, but, you know, kind of the mother figure. You see this huge bird, and you often see the bird on the top of temples going on the ceiling. You see moot. 
coming across. Uh, Moot Nefertari, for example, uh, Mother Nefertari, who was a, a major uh, Kemetic ruler, you know, ruler consort. You see Nefertari, uh, the wife of um, Ramses II, Moot Nefertari, you see mother. Um, Moot is the sky. That's the whole point. So the thing that allows us to have, have oxygen to breathe, the thing that protects us from the harsh elements, not just the cover, but literally the womb of the earth, Moot. <laughs> you see the sky. So, I mean, it doesn't get any deeper than that. And Moot is a central, in fact, one of the oldest expressions of divinity in world history because the Egyptians are one of the oldest in history and she's one of the oldest in the Egyptian pantheon. By pantheon, I mean expressions of the divine. There's only one notion of a creator in, in these African traditions. Uh, you see this question of motherhood. In fact, the great Nigerian scholar, Yoruba scholar, scholar uh, Oyewanki Oyewumi, uh, she wrote a book um, called What Gender is Motherhood, where she tries to detach and re and, and remember, detach from and remember, detach from Western notions of motherhood, because motherhood gets demoted in Western cultures. You know, once you become a mother, you're less attractive because desire is at the center of this individualistic worldview. You want to have sex. You want somebody to look a certain way. Once they become a mother, you say, oh, you got to keep yourself up. What are y'all doing? And then she said, no, because she, she, one of her arguments is, you know, when you start thinking about motherhood in relation to male, female, or more important, man, woman, woman becomes a social construct that is populated with all these problematic ideas in societies where the material becomes the, the, the center of how we perceive reality and the individualistic expression of desire becomes our reason for being. So you don't want no woman around with no children. What? Who kind of people? You know what? Let me detach from y'all because y'all crazy. And remember, <laughs> so when she asked the question, what gender is motherhood? She's really trying to remember that the function of mother is the reason we're having this conversation. Yes, it takes father to reproduce. And so there's a function for father too, a varying function depending on time, space, place, you know, culture. But mother, that's our first home. I mean, literally. So when you see, for example, even in the husband and wife relationship in ancient Egypt, when you see the, the one the Greeks call Horus, the 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 the, uh, the Chemites would say Heru. When you see his wife, his wife, who the Greeks would call, um, I, I, I don't forget the Greek names, but they're not easy to call up right quick because I don't use them. But I use them because people have heard them before. The wife of uh, of Horus, the wife of, of Heru is um, Hathor. They, they call her Hathor with the cow horns. But when you see the glyph for Hathor in the Egyptian it is an encasement. You see Heru, who is a bird, a falcon, and you see this box around Heru. And that is the glyph for Het Heru. Het Heru, the house of Heru. In other words, the universe in which he came into existence and can live is his wife. Now, that's very different than saying wife. That's my wife. You know, the wife should submit to the husband. Dude, without the Het, without the house, you don't even come into existence. And if you manage the way to get here some kind of way, you ain't got nowhere to stay. You gone as soon as you get here. Do you understand, Heru? <laughs> so so the, what I'm saying is that when we start thinking about motherhood, motherhood isn't just about childbearing. Motherhood is about reproducing the next generation and linking the generations through time and space. So it's not just an honored position. It is the essential position. And this isn't uh, this. And again, we have to stop thinking hierarchically. Everybody has a role to play in society. And these roles can change depending on where you are. I'll end with this just for now, because I know we weren't supposed to really get into this. But um, there, 
this is the this is the natural order of things. It is the natural. You're right. You're right. It's the natural order of things because we haven't even come across the water. We haven't even come across the water with Oshun. Uh, you, that's why Beyonce, I think, is so fascinated with Oshun. No question. It's why he and she and Jay Z, you know, went to Cuba. You know, Santeria. What they doing down there? And then you see all this stuff in Black is King. You see her with the baby. And I mean, all this is very important. You see the yellow. Eliminated as, as my dear, you know, my, my former student now, brilliant scholar Shanice Thompson wrote her dissertation on that. Lemonade and other yellow things, the presence of Oshun. Uh, all this, this was, and we didn't talk about Mami Wata. Mami Wata, many of y'all know Mami Wata spread throughout the Caribbean, Latin America, into North America, now coming out of Africa. The whole idea of the mother, water is essential in that piece. You don't see male water expressions of divinity. So Yemaya, uh, you know, Oshun, it's very important to understand. Now, contrast that with the West, where every day of the week except one is a Norse god. And the reason Marvel is going to have Loki on Disney Plus drop on Wednesday, one of the reasons is the name uh, Wednesday itself is connected to the Norse, is, is a remix of the name for Loki. You know what I'm saying? And of course, the next day is his brother, Thor's Day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So many. But anyway, the point is, where the women? All the women are like Hera. If you got a cow in Kemet, it's Het Heru, right? But if you got a cow in Greece, well, that's Hera tied up to a post so Zeus can take her from behind like it's some kind of point. What? What? Yeah, see? So Oyuwumi is like, let me de-link because y'all now understand where everything comes from, from pornography to the idea of unequal pay for women. Y'all got problems. <laughs> Listen, I, I was thinking today about the people that don't want to wear masks is why we have venereal disease and all this. Y'all don't want to wear a condom. Y'all don't want to wear a mask. Anyway, okay, go ahead. Continue. No, no, no. You know what I'm like, we, we are in, this, this pandemic lasted way longer than it needed to because people didn't want to wear a mask. A mask. <sighs> Professor Hunter, I'm glad. No, no, I'm glad you said that. And please stay there for me because think about all the people and everybody listening probably knows somebody if it's not you whose allergies got better, who didn't get the flu this year, who all of a sudden recognized that they feel better, their lung capacity is better. Why? Putting that mask on and staying home protected you from all that stuff that if there had never been a COVID, you would have got. Mm. Just see how you change your behavior and everything can change. I mean, how many people have you talked to that said, I didn't get sickness with it? No. Allergy. And it's your behavior. Yes. You can control. It's, it's weird. You so can weird. control. Well, yeah. But the more we know, the more we do better. As, as your friend, uh, LeVar Burton might remind us, the more we know. <laughs> you know? The more we know. So, yeah. So, so that's on Mother's Day. We're just a little bit. So happy Mother's Day every day to all the mothers. My own mother, 93 Thank God she has her daughter, my sister, uh, and her children and her brother down there in Houston um, safely away from the hillbilly horde that's going to destroy themselves. Oh, I should mention this while we're talking about that, though. Thank God for Gussie and Randy and them down there taking care of my mother, Kathy Carr. Happy mother, early Mother's Day, Mom. Well, all y'all, put them put them Mother's Day pieces in the YouTube. I'll go back and look in the chat and see how to happy Mother's Day. Because we, we love celebrating our mothers. Um, so at any rate, I should mention this since I evoked Texas. We just passed Cinco de Mayo, the 5th of May, which is very important. We know that Mexican Independence Day is the 5th of, wait. No, Mexican Independence Day is September the 16th. Okay, so what is Cinco <laughs> de Mayo? <laughs> In fact, let me uh, let me just show this to you. My very good friends at Zen Education Pro, uh, Project, the Zen Education Project uh, 
uh, Deborah Mancart and all her good people, all those teachers, thousands of school teachers who unite, who write lesson plans, who share them. Y'all check Zenia out. Very important. They have a great lesson on Cinco de Mayo written by a parent who, you know, Cinco de Mayo is one where sometimes if you're in school, they want you to do a Mexican hat dance and they bring sombreros and pinatas and all that stuff. And she was like offended. She said, we don't do none of that in Mexico. Burritos and tacos. We don't eat tacos. I mean, now, of course, commercialism is everywhere. But what you find is it Cinco. In fact, this is a very good book. If you want to read about Cinco de Mayo, start with uh, David Hayes Bautista's book, El Cinco de Mayo, an American tradition. This is, uh, I think, maybe 2012, University of California Press. Uh, yeah. Yeah. University of California. Very interesting because and this isn't the only one you could talk about, but I'm, I'm mentioning it because Cinco de Mayo is an interesting piece. Um, it celebrates something called the Second Battle of Puebla. That was a battle where the Mexican forces who had engaged in a civil war and then engaged in a well, civil war to put out the Spanish. They 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 created a space and, and, and took their independence in the early 19th century from Spain. They abolished enslavement in Mexico in 1829. And uh, so when those of you who, you know, hoot and holler for the Alamo, remember the Alamo, you should remember the Alamo. Yeah, you should remember the Alamo. Not, don't remember what they told you in the social structure. This is, where they, this is why people are mad about this critical race theory thing. They're using it as a label for anybody who wants to tell the truth. They don't want truth. You understand? They want um, election integrity, meaning what? We want control. They want... Um, voter confidence, meaning what? Whiteness wants to be able to say, okay, I feel good about this. So when you see uh, Jim Jordan, who can't find a coat, but I understand, Corn Pone, Hillbilly out of Ohio. Let me not go too far there because my tongue will get me, you know, I don't want to wrestle with that dude for a couple of reasons. One, I'm not a professional wrestler. Two, I'm not a professional wrestler. One, having gone to Ohio State, I'm thinking, did my career in Ohio State overlap with his time there? Because what you've done, sir, is unspeakable. If there was law in this country, you'd be in jail. But at any rate, Jim Jordan, when you see him talking about they're, 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 they're rejecting the will, 74, 74 million voters, 74 million voters, 74 million voters. OK, Hillbilly, can you count to 81 million? Because that's how many voted for the other guy in another state. But what they're, what they're really saying is we don't care about anything other than what we care about. So when you see, uh, remember the Alamo in the textbooks. They make heroes out of Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie, who had an enslaved African in damn in the Spanish mission in, in San Antonio with him. And then they talk about Santa Ana and them like the bad guys instead of the people who were trying to keep these adventurous Confederate hillbillies from lopping off the top third of Mexico. They the home team. Santa Ana is the home team. So all y'all dressing up with coonskin caps are talking about remember the Alamo. Yeah, remember the Alamo. Remember that you're cheering for the social structure against the against the Mexican governance structure. Who is Santa Ana to the Mexicans? Which means who should he be to anybody who has a common humanity? Anyway, Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo is really an American holiday. It's not a Mexican holiday. It's barely noticed in Mexico. Uh, because after what becomes the United States dispossesses that top part of Mexico from California all the way coming back east and then to, oh, well, not quite to the Mississippi, but when they do that, there are millions of Mexicans who are now trapped in the United States. And they're here to this day, we know. They're Americans. They're Californians. California comes into the United States in 1850. That is the same year as we talked about a couple of weeks ago or last week. John C. Calhoun dies. Calhoun, who believed in, you know, interposition and nullification, words that John Roberts doesn't quite use in Shelby County versus Holder, but close enough. 
John Calhoun also believed in the expansion of enslavement, and he was the, it, the father in many ways of the filibuster, the, the thing that Joe Manchin is hanging on to, like his precious birthright. Uh, but let's tie that to Cinco de Mayo. There was a guy named, uh, uh, Bautista writes about a guy named Raymond Hill. Raymond Hill was a legislator in California in the 1860s, and he was pro-union because the Civil War now had jumped off. This is about 10, 11 years after California comes into the union as a free state. This is the so-called compromise of 1850 because the South wants to expand slavery all the way across the continent. The only way to stop them is to bring in states as free states. And ultimately what the compromise of 1850 is gonna do is trigger some stuff like bleeding Kansas, you know, 1854, 1856, what goes Kansas and the Nebraska Act, all that stuff. John Brown jumps off, story for another day, we'll tear all that up on narrative. We got all this time and all the space in the world over there. But when California comes in, that's gonna box them in. And then of course in California, you got all these Mexicans, formerly Mexicans who are now Californians in the United States who are proud of their heritage. So Cinco de Mayo where the uh, Mexicans defeat a French army who thinks they're going to come in under Napoleon III and pick up a cheap bargain now that the Mexicans have beat off the Spanish and are independent, the French think they're going to come in and be the next colonizers. It's kind of ironically, they're in the reverse position they were in Vietnam. Because remember, Vietnam was a French colony. And then the Vietnamese are able to beat them back. And here come America, thinking they're going, you know, under the guise of communism if you remember, some of y'all remember that. But anyway, in this position, the French are coming in after the Spanish and the Mexicans is like, come here, we got something for you, baby. Kick in the door, waving the 4-4. Four four. <laughs> All you hear is, Papa, don't hit me no more. In other words, they put them back. First Battle of Puebla, second Battle of Puebla, they win. And in 1862, the 5th of May, they have a, Mex a victory over the French. Doesn't mean that the tussle is over, but it means that they celebrate that day as a victory, but it's a small victory. It really becomes big when the United States expands and all those former Mexicans are now Americans and they use it as, um, let me see what Bautista says. He says, it's not really a Mexican holiday, a celebration created in California during the Civil War by native born Latinos and immigrants from Mexico and Latin America. It started as a um, kind of nostalgia. It started as pride in their homeland, which is why when you see single de Mayo celebrations in the United States, you'll see a Mexican flag, but you'll also see an American flag. They put it together. Then it becomes by the 1930s, it becomes something that, that now we're coming fast, fast forward in almost 150, not 150 years, about 130 years. It becomes something where they're sowing pride. It's decidedly uh, um, patriotic, so to speak. Then in the 1960s and 70s, and this is a period where, Karen, I hope we really have a good chance to talk about this in narrative. The whole notion of red power, meaning the American Indian movement, Native Americans, black power, of course, we know in the civil rights and then black power movement and forward black arts movement. You see something in the Chicano movement, the Chicano movement, the whole notion of Azitlan. I mean, in other words, they say that whole West Coast, that's us, was us before, you know. And so and then they talk about this notion of, you know, this power of the indigenous people it becomes an expression of pride in that as well. But here I want to I want to end with this on Cinco de Mayo. I just wanted to bring it up very quickly. What this cat, Raymond Hill, and I'm, I'm looking at the book now. I wish I could find a page. If I could, I would show you all very quickly if I can't. I think I remember it's around page 80. Yeah, here it is. In the Voice of Mexico newspaper, they publish right after the Emancipation Proclamation is printed and, and, and announced by Lincoln in 1862. In early 1863, 
they print it in Spanish for the Spanish speaking people to read. And they say that, and this guy, uh, uh, Ramon Hill says, he said, anybody, anybody who is against the filibuster, because he remembers John C. Calhoun, these Republicans, he said, anybody who says they're against the filibuster must also be against the social institutions or political formations that enabled it. Meaning what? You, if you're against the filibuster, you must be against the white nationalists and the expansionists. Because what Hill says is, and Hill has a, a white parent and a Mexican parent. He ends up going to school back east, comes back out to California, runs for legislature, gets in the legislature. He says, see, these people who are for the filibuster, what they're saying is we're losing control of the slave states. Those are the same people that tried to say they're going to make Mexico a state in the Confederate States of America and Nicaragua and every other place they can get. They are against you. They And I know you're an American now because you in California and they took that part. But the, but do we have slavery out here? No. Did we have it in Mexico? No, we abolished in 1829. So therefore, Cinco de Mayo became a celebration in America. Finally, now I, we talk more, but you just read this book for yourself or check out, like I said, Zen Ed and get the real, you know, get the longer lessons in this. Cinco de Mayo became a day when they not only celebrated Mexican pride and, and ethnic heritage, not these sombrero hat dances and burritos and tacos, no. Like Mother's Day, commercialized that, right? And Joe Biden even was at a Mexican restaurant. Okay, support businesses, but let's be clear. They celebrated that. They celebrated the idea that this is in their mind patriotic because self-determination. I mean, what is America to me, as Paul Robeson would say, the house I live in. This is my Mexico. This is my. Remember when George W. Bush was president and, and they tried to start a movement to pass laws to say you have to sing the national anthem in English. You can't sing it in Spanish. I was just like, I don't sing it anyway. But hell, I, I'll listen to it in Spanish just to see the look on your face. Anyway, what is an American? Right. But it's not only that. Not only those two things. Here's the third thing. They would pair it with a celebration of the end of enslavement in the United States in solidarity with the black people of the United States and the Emancipation Proclamation, Cinco de Mayo would be celebrated with that as another theme that they put up. Now, how many times did y'all hear that way? I was kicking back them tequilas the other day. Exactly. This is why remembering is so important because guess who also forgot it? The Mexicans who celebrate Cinco de Mayo. But sounds never dissipate. They only recreate in another space and time. So in other words, we can always recover memory if we pause to remember. So for next Cinco de Mayo, think about maybe, maybe we'll have something narrative, Professor Hunter. By then we have a million people, or actually maybe two or three or four or five or 10, 15 million. And so we just have the biggest, the world's biggest Cinco de Mayo conversation on global emancipation uh, movements. And then we just remix Cinco, why not? Why not? We can do that now. Okay, so Mother's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Let's get into this critical race theory for a second, because everybody's been talking about it. Um, we know that in narrative, we know that in class here, we know that in our connected universes, we're jailbreaking this. We are about pouring clean glasses of water. We're about asking that question Sonia Sanchez asked in the early 70s in her play when she said, uh-huh, but how do it free us? So when you see these people losing their mind and you hear, you know, uh, People like uh, Tucker Carlson, voice modulating, hadn't quite cracked yet. I mean, at what age does your voice drop? But, you know, or, or why are they, why are they, why is this critical race theory? It's common. Let's just pause because they're two separate things. We're going to talk about what critical race theory is. But we're also going to talk about what the white nationalists are doing. This is something else. And we're going to talk about that only quickly, very quickly, right? And, and and by way of doing this, uh, Prof, I saw you 
uh somebody was on twitter this week so will y'all talk about this and, and i was like i'll oh, give 30 seconds and you was like nah maybe two seconds or something so i don't know if i could get it in two seconds but we're not gonna deal a whole lot because what's being ginned up in the commercial media mass entertainment media what's being discussed there what is being um promulgated in social media and hyped up has nothing to do with either critical race theory or any of the things that they're trying to attach to it doesn't have anything to do with some proposed regulations out of the department of education the u.s department of education that simply refer to some you know 1619 project some of the work of ibram kendi as things that might be useful in helping students think through things first of all education is a state and local affair so let me tell you as a teacher and professor hunter tell you this is any teachers all, all the teachers in this room right now y'all know this you know that once your door closes and can't nobody no and i know they're forced test scores and it, but and, and, and go ahead why are you laughing why are you laughing bro <laughs> Go ahead. Once that door closes. Once that door closes. Oh, my God. I'm telling you as somebody who is very proud of the work that we did in Philadelphia to, to build that high school curriculum uh, led by Dana King, who's still in. I talked to Dana yesterday, uh, a young brother named Israel Jimenez, brilliant young teacher in Philadelphia. Not 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 starting out now. He's been at, he's been at it now for well over a decade working, doing work. Uh, we're 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 now. Uh, reviving the work in Philadelphia because here's what happens. Philadelphia has, um, I was talking to my sister in Jamela, a friend of mine who has uh, worked with Philadelphia Freedom Schools many, many, many years, uh, who's a curriculum writer, a master teacher herself, uh, primarily English. And uh, we were talking about curriculum was written in Philadelphia in the late 60s. Philadelphia has an over 50 year history of brilliant educators writing curriculum for African, African American uh, subjects. We'll call it African-American studies. I'm very, very, very particular about that. But the work has been done. So even the 1619 Project, which makes a very important contribution, is not even new. And in many ways, not nearly as on point as some of the stuff that was written. And, you know, we've talked about that the stuff is on narrative. Now I'll go back to Carl G. Woodson, all this kind of thing. Anyway, so back to the point Well, we really need to leave the point. But we wrote that curriculum. We did professional. I hate to call it professional development. I don't like to talk to teachers like that. I'm a teacher. You're a teacher. We're sitting together, working through things together. I'm not, you know, it's not a hierarchical kind of thing. We all learn from each other. We, but we had sessions with all the teachers. We get And then it's in the universe now. So I used to drop in on in high schools in Philly, you know, come in the middle of the day. If I was in town, I wasn't in DC. You no, know, come to, I'm come to what y'all doing. Hmm. What y'all doing? Hmm. The people, the, the the teachers who we had gone with the curriculum and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. But some you go in some classrooms, they showing a video. I remember going in, in, in a classroom one time, and the video was uh, what well, the video was actually television. It was Jerry Springer during the African? <laughs> oh, I saw Roots. I saw, I saw Roots several times in, in some of the classrooms. But you know why? Sadly. In many classrooms, assessment drives instruction. So there's no AP test for the mandatory African-American history course. There's no district-wide test that everybody has to take and adapt to their classrooms. So if you don't have it on the assessment, you know the first thing many students ask, what's going to be on the test? But so you can, if you can, if you have the the, the, the the liberty, the freedom to design whatever you want to design to get you to the grade you're going to give, teachers will do whatever they want. And, and, and at its best, that's beautiful. At its worst, that's a recipe for disaster. So we, I'm saying all that to say that 
1619 Project, millions of dollars spent. You know, millions of copies of this magazine from uh, September 4th last printed. And, uh, a whole curriculum framework, it, uh, another curriculum framework distributed out on the platform of Pulitzer and all this kind of things. Great. But uh, between all that work and the students are the teachers. And guess what? Teachers like me already had, you know. So when they came, they, they called the, the HBCUs and said, we're going to send you all, all these copies. And I was like, oh, man. Well, I had a copy. I mean, I bought my copy when I landed in, at D.C. Airport, D.C. National Airport, coming back from Egypt. Because they came out the Sunday we came back from Egypt. So I had my copy from, I'm reading, you know, on the way to the house. And so, but that having been said, I said, this is great. I said, I'll sign up for many copies. Uh, let me just ask you one question, though. Yes. Uh, did you send these copies to Harvard, to Yale, to Stanford? Did you send copies to University of Chicago and University of Texas of Austin? Did you send copies to University of Georgia, uh, to Emory? Did the copies go to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill? Uh, did you send uh, copies? Why are you asking me that? Well, I assume that since you think I don't have a curriculum that I've already worked on very hard, and then I'll just, when I get this, I'll be like, oh, thank you, sir, and put this right. I assume you think they also don't have any curriculum <laughs> i mean so the, but this i, I ain't mad because because y'all not educators <laughs> i mean that that makes a that makes such an assumption about the nature of what goes on in teach in professional teaching and learning Woo! and i know it, it's it's disrespectful but but once you hear that then you say okay no 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 that's not what we're saying it's supplemental okay let's talk supplements story for another day come to narrative we'll talk more about this but why am i why am i saying this all this noise you hear people talking about oh, critical race theory, they're trying to change us. They're trying to, mm -mm. it ain't even about that. The numbers you have to keep in mind are not 1619. They're not 1776. This ain't a fight between the 1619 project and the 1776. This is the, the four numbers you need to keep in mind are 2022. And if you want another set of numbers, fine, 2022. Four. Those are the next two federal elections. See, what this is about is rallying the base. What this is about is, is, is distraction. We're going to argue about this and y'all going to talk about people people screaming CRT, CRT. They can't tell. What does CRT mean? Uh, crit, 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 CRT. Okay. <laughs> this is labeling. This is a propaganda war. Okay. Now let's set that aside. Now let's get to the real thing. What is critical race theory? Whew. I thought about this a lot since we talked middle of the week, Prof. And you know what I settled on for a few minutes today? Let me tell y'all a little story. A little story about a black kid who wanted to fight white supremacy and thought that you could do it engaging in what one of his jegnas, the great Jacob Carruthers, used to call intellectual warfare. I'm talking about me. But before I do, take this as a working definition of critical race theory. Uh, critical race theory is like, one dimension of it is like, um, what if storytelling? What if? Derek Bell used to ask, in fact, wrote a, wrote a problem in the case book that I use um, for my class, the class I teach at Howard Law, which we're going to talk about in a second, uh, race, race, racism, and American law. This is my beat up copy. I got a fresh copy, but I like this one because I wrote all in the margins and, you know, uh, textbooks, uh, legal textbooks are already very, uh, very small print, but then I write smaller than that all the way through. <laughs> so, you know, and I loved the law. I love the law as a concept. 
Don't mistake that with loving the field of violence called Western jurisprudence. But the idea of ideas and the idea that once we have reached some consensus on ideas, we can move forward together. That's a very compelling thing to me. But let me not get too far away. So so it's almost like what if storytelling. Derrick Bell got a case, got, got an example in there. He wrote a whole legal opinion for an imaginary Supreme Court. And he says, this is the what if Brown versus Board of Education, instead of overturning Plessy versus Ferguson, affirmed it. Hmm? That don't make no sense. Calm down, because I was, you know, I was there in the room when they was arguing about Brown versus this is the genius of Derrick Bell. We'll get to him in a minute. What I'm saying is they never tried to make separate equal. So wait a minute, mm -mm. set aside them dolls and all that other stuff to get y'all looking at all this crazy stuff, right? Consider the absurdity of the idea that a black kid is picking the white doll because she's segregated and that the remedy to that is sit her next to the human being that looks like the doll. Right. What if <laughs> Zornia Hurston would have appreciated Derrick Bell for this because she argued this is not the way to go. Get rid of the uh, get rid of Jim Crow for sure. But you're going to sacrifice the schools. The best of things we do in the schools. we need the equipment. We need the teacher training. We need the equal funding. What we don't need is what might happen, which is they're going to. Uh huh. Derek Bell has said, what if they had said, what if the Supreme Court had said, Plessy versus Ferguson is affirmed today, but since we never tried to make separate equal, give those black schools as much money as you give the white schools. And if you don't do it over a three-year period with integrated oversight boards, you must then integrate immediately. Bell says, this does two things. Number one, it gives you a chance to see what would happen if you had the same money. Listen, if the black colleges had the same money as the white colleges, Gramlin would be playing Tennessee State or FAM every year in the NCAA championship game. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? That's what that's, see, that's what primetime then figured out going down to Jackson State and Eddie George at Tennessee State. Y'all better watch now. This is what Langston Hughes said. Oh, look at the Negro meek in mind. <laughs> Beware the day they change their mind. In other words, if they start going masterpiece, son, going to Tennessee State, look, I rep my people here. AT, Aggie Pride. I ain't mad at y'all with my man Sean Utsi yesterday. Sean Utsi is the uh outgoing chair. He and I both getting out of these chair positions. Uh Mia Howard him at uh Virginia Commonwealth, VCU. That's my man. Sean Utsi and I started at Howard around the same time. And finally he said, I love y'all, but uh then he went down to Richmond. He's done, he's a filmmaker. He did a great film on the uh burial ground in Richmond. Oh, Karen, we should, you know what? Sean would show that film in narrative. I know he would. He did an incredible documentary film on the, the, the history of the Association of Black Psychologists, ABCI. Brilliant piece of work. Oh, I know he would. And he's now working on a documentary on the history of black studies. He came up with his son, uh, his, his young son, N Nana. His wife is a uh, Ghanaian. So that's the, the, their boy, Nana, uh, who is, uh, how old is Nana? I think 12, 12 or 13. He came up yesterday. So I had to mask up and go down to San Kofa and get with them. Um, we did an interview for the history of black studies and we were talking and he went to A&T. See, I'm like, man, you repping your A&T stuff. He said, I was like, where you get that from? He said, oh man, I got it at home. Come. I said, you know what? Let me, let me rep some Aggie, Aggie pride. I got an A&T shirt back in the back. So I put this on. A&T has raised almost $90 million this year. Mm -hmm. It's the largest HBCU in the country. Uh, and you know, I'm, I, I'm, I, 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 I joke with the young people at Howard. I said, you know, Howard Spelman, Morehouse. I loved our Fisk in my hometown. All these are private HBCUs. I'm a state HBCU Negro. I'm a field Negro, so I know. Hey, I rep. You know, Howard, y'all. When y'all say H U, you know that blue and white is teaching y'all. It's Tennessee State. So understand. I believe that there's all one big HBCU with 103 or four different locations. So you know, I know y'all like to hear that, but <laughs> but I don't care because. 
I, I've been around long enough to understand. So what you see then is that thinking about how these black colleges could get funding and compete, thinking about K-12 education, if it had the same funding, what Bell does in this what if storytelling is force us out of the way we've been taught the stuff long enough to step back and say, I never thought about that. And so, whereas one working definition of CRT could be in, in, in a narrow sense, what if stories, another short working definition of critical race theory could be, hmm, I never thought about that before. Theory, writing, teaching that makes you say, hmm, I never thought about that before by forcing you to step out of what you've been taught. So, of course, it's very unsettling in a country that is based on settler colonialism that runs that game on you, K-12. So now let's get very specific and tell you this little story, right? Um, How do I start now? I'm thinking about it. Okay. <laughs> this is very cinematic. And I know, see, hey, y'all, narrative is going to be into filmmaking too. Professor Hunter, I wish I could tell y'all 10% of what she got. I mean, it, she's still getting it. So, I mean, you know, but part of it is we want some filmmakers. We got some filmmakers. So I could see a documentary opening and then you hear somebody's, oh, you know, we call them the crits. <laughs> we call them the crits. That's what we called them when I was in law school. Um, five years before I went to law school at Ohio State University, something was started called the uh, I should have a book around oh look at that come here something was started called the Federalist Society y'all heard of Federalist Society <laughs> the Federalist Society how conservatives took the law back from liberals this is a very good book uh, Michael Avery and Danielle McLaughlin Vanderbilt University Press 2013 um so it was about five years old when I um uh, when I went to law school the opening line of the book in 1980, Stephen Calabrese, who some of you all know the law, y'all know that name. Stephen Calabrese, Lee Lieberman, and David McIntosh were young conservative law students. Calabrese at Yale, Lieberman and McIntosh at the University of Chicago, alienated from the prevailing political orientation of their classmates in their schools. Goes on. They're alienated. Now that's interesting because those schools they named, and maybe we'll get into this. I see you. I'm gonna, I got my eye on the clock. I don't want to go too far, but I think it's it's good. Because, you know, I don't know that, you know, a narrative we could really stretch out. This could be something. And and I teach at Howard Law School, but I do not teach critical race theory. That's not, I don't teach a critical race theory class. The name of my class is Race, Law, and Change. And I think a lot of the law students think it might be a critical race theory class, but for reasons that will become clear in a second, it's not. Although we do cover parts of critical race theory. It's not anchored in critical race theory. Um, it's interesting because those schools... Yale, U of Chicago. Later, we may talk about Harvard, University of California, Berkeley. In fact, I think I pulled. Oh, look at that. I sure did. Okay, good. All right. Those schools are engaged in intellectual warfare in the 1960s and 70s. This is uh, under the rubric of something called critical legal studies. Critical race theory comes out of something called critical legal studies. The, the, the principal anchor of critical legal studies is a fight between quote unquote, liberal and conservative interpretations of jurisprudence. And, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. I'm gonna use Derek Bell because I don't get to, because otherwise it gets real academic. So let me just continue the story. We call them the crits. I get to law school in 1987, but who am I? Who is Professor Hunter? Again, the Africana studies framework. Who are Africans to other people? 
the social structure question. Who are Africans to each other? The governance structure question. Who are we to American society? And I'm talking about, in fact, everybody's talking about Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, Gen, 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 sipping on gin and juice, whatever y'all want to say, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> rolling down the street. Anyway, all that language. Can you imagine the power of ideas? This is the book. This is William Strauss and Neil Howe. Generations, the history of America's future, 1584 to 2069. This is the book where they invent the language that we use today. In fact, I'm just going to show you the page because wow. this book was actually published in 1991. So it's out of date. There you go. GI, elders born, 1901-1924. Silent midlifers, 25 to 42. Boomer, rising adults, 43 to 60. 13er, youth born, 61 81. Those numbers have changed a little bit. What they call 13er, Y'all know what that is, right? That's Generation X. Gen Xers. Then Gen Y. Then Gen Z. They've continued to add, but it's really oriented around what? Marketing. It's oriented around uh, events, behavior, attitudes. It's dem it's demography. And we use it as if these are identities. Oh, hey, Boomer. Or Gen Xer. Ho, 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 ho. Can you imagine the impact of one book? This is why reading is fundamental. Riff. That's what we used to call it. But anyway, all right, to the point. So that would make Karen and I not quite boomers. We like Gen Xers, that that, that range, right? My buddy, uh, Bakari Katwana, my dear friend, Bakari Katwana, wrote the book, The Hip Hop Generation. And Jeff Chang and them cats, man, and Davey D. Cook, who remixed uh, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, an excellent history of the hip hop generation. I'm saying, what is the hip hop generation? Well, it's people born around 1965. I told Bakari when I was laughing, Bakari, you know it's 1965 because that's when we was born. <laughs> in other words people take the numbers and back map identity into the numbers and then we take the numbers and make it as if it's real as jeff chang says in the opening line of the preface of can't stop won't stop the 2005 edition generations are fictions mm -hmm. they're only a way to impose a bracket around experiences so that we can convene some collective identity based on an arbitrary marker just think about that next time. Oh, you're a Gen Xer. You wouldn't understand. Oh, you're a millennial. You went, why y'all? You All right, pause. All right. But technically, in terms of labeling, we'd be Gen Xers, right? It's okay. Who else are we to the social structure? We are the shock troops of Brown versus Board of Education. I'll never forget my dear friend, um, um, Lisa Crooms Robinson, uh, who is a professor at Howard University Law School, one of the most brilliant, you know, people you ever want to meet. Um very conversant with critical race theory because we both went to law school. She at Michigan at Ohio State. After she went to Howard undergrad, uh, same time Kamala Harris was there, who's who's in our generation as well. And I was at Tennessee State. You know, we we came of age into what became critical race theory. So we saw the formations, in fact. So um, I'll never forget when she and I were, I mean, talk about honor. We were uh, panelists in a conversation, uh, a day long conversation with Viria and Darius, Darius Shaw. I'm sorry, Viria and Darius um, mm, 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 Swan, Swan, the Swans. This is these are the Swans whose little boy uh, they filed a lawsuit on in North Carolina with a young attorney out of North Carolina Central named Julius Chambers, who ended up being the director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, called Swan versus Charlotte Mettenberg. This was the busing case. So y'all don't talk about busing and these white people in Boston throwing rocks at the buses, and because it's up north, as if all the racism was down south, then the world figures out in the '70s what this is about, right? So. You know, we 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 were and we told them it was really honest. Say, you know what, you elders, we want y'all to know, 
you know, that lawsuit you filed for your son, we, we, we're in your son's generation. We were those children. We were those children after Brown who were bust. We were those children who had to get up early in the morning. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Get on them buses. I'm talking about elementary school. My mom and daddy had to get up. Well, not my daddy. My daddy was already gone because my father worked every day of his life, like your father, Professor Hunter. So let's just cut all this noise out. I don't like this demographic, how we separate. And we're going to talk about intersectionality in a minute, too. This demographic slicing and then inhabiting identities as if that demographic slicing somehow is the lived experiences of human beings. No, no. But anyway, we'll get to that in a second. So I never beat my daddy out the house. That Negro in the years before we got a car, he'd get up and walk all the way across Nashville to get to work. He was never late. He had 6 a.m. shift at the Veterans Administration Hospital and Dietetic Services, my daddy. So, yeah, I never beat him up. But I was up right after him because <laughs> soon, you know, he leave the house like time bus get up because that bus is coming and we got to ride like 45 minutes out here to the suburbs to be bused. To a school that looks nothing like my neighborhood, nothing like my church, nothing like the community center, nothing like my baseball team, nothing like what the boys we used to ride bikes with and go get our comic books. But I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. Then come home to my Billy got a pony. When can we get a pony? And my father. <laughs> Some of y'all came back with them absurd requests. And for a man to work as hard as my daddy did to be able to give him that amount of pleasure <laughs> to laugh. <laughs> Okay, where we gonna put him? <laughs> yeah, I'll buy you a pony. As soon as you come up with half the money. And, and in other words, I mean, just I mean the retorts of I wish we had, in fact, narrative folk. Create a group and put together folk sayings of black parents, and then let's publish the book. Because <laughs> I promise you, black parents got the best <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the best, the best responses to crazy black children requests I've ever heard. Anyway, so but that's because of busing. Because now we up here cheek to jowl with these people who live in the suburbs, right? Uh, Ainsley, uh, what's Ainsley's last name? Oh, my gosh. She wrote a whole history of Nashville desegregation. Ainsley T. Erickson. Erickson, I, I'll never be able to get to the book. It's over here. See, y'all, this is a little bit. All that, y'all ain't never going to see that. Anyway, the point is that mm, Ainsley Erickson, get her book. Um, I've never met her, corresponded with her, you know, a little bit, social media, uh, because my cousins, my older cousins, Ethel, Especially, I think about my cousin Ethel, who my uncle Virgil, now an ancestor, walked by the hand when she had to go her first day of school in the National Tennessean and the National Banner, taking these pictures of these little black children and their parents, walking them in these hostile white crowds. I mean, so it didn't just happen in Little Rock. Let's be very clear about that. So, and they're coming out of these black schools where they were very proud of their schools. In Nashville, it was Megs. In Nashville, it was Cameron High School. And, you know, so we talked about before in Little Rock, it ain't just the Little Rock Nine. No, they came out of Horace Mann, which was the school that was built, a brand new school that, was the successor of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And before that, they were at Mifflin Gibbs. Go look up Mifflin Gibbs, G-I-B-B-S, Judge Gibbs. Brilliant, brother. That was the elementary school in Little Rock. Black people didn't just drop out the sky and walk into Little Rock High School. That's the social structure story. And that's that same story that has people like me and Lisa and Karen. We're the shock troops of Brown. We're expected to be the brand ambassadors for blackness. And as Asa Hill used to say, you get your children up, you get them fed, you get them washed up, you get them up, you put them on the bus and you send them to war every day. Then they come home. You don't ask them how was the war. You say, how was school? And they tell you about war stories. The teacher didn't call on me or, yeah, I don't know why. And then you say, OK, well, just, you know, try harder, do what the teacher says. And you send them back to war, except black parents found out quick. Some of these teachers don't like our students, don't like our children. 
And then the poor black teachers, some of them from the formerly segregated schools that they cherry pick and bring in because they want the best black teachers to teach their children. But then you got the racism those teachers have to put. And you know, Karen, I know you know this, sis. Anybody who's ever been a teacher who a student came back to you years later and apologized <laughs> because they became a teacher. It's only when you're on the teaching side that you really understand. I think about Miss Hill. I think about Miss Baines. I think about uh, Milton Kennerly. I think about all the black teachers I saw sprinkled in there. And now as a teacher myself and a grown man and a scholar and a student, I understand an echo of some of the battles they had. And even the white teachers who we would call allies now, who were in those buildings, who we look at now. And I say, you know, Elizabeth Bivens, you know, Robert Rice. I'm thinking about these are white teachers who was like, nah, these children. And then some of the hate they got from some of what well, my mom used to call them the diehards. Ooh, oh, diehards. You know, black people in the South, too. There's another group. Come up with all the names we have for white people that people think. Now, y'all think it was like Cracker Peck. Oh, no. Oh, no. You can have a whole lexicon. <laughs> no, words, no, no slurs, no epithets. Oh, but the names, the names, though, die hard. My mama, they come out parent teacher night. How did it go? I said, oh, die hard over there. In other words, that attitude going to die hard. But it's OK, because I'm going to kill it. And you're going to help. Meaning what? Our job was school. We're the brand ambassadors for the race. We carrying the whole damn race on the back, eight years old. Didn't know that we was carrying the whole race on the back. We were just told what y'all heard, be twice as good. That comes in that generation of Brown. So anyway, how does that do with critical race theory? Well, after coming out of that situation, which was only made possible because of Brown versus Board of Education, the lawyers who argued Brown, the black scholars who thought about Brown. By the time I come along and start going to elementary school in the 1970s, some of them are beginning to think about whether or not that was the best thing to do. What happened between 1955 and 1970? Well, 54 Brown, 55, the remedy phase, Brown two, all deliberate speed. And so how, how long do we have to do this? Well, take, you know, take all deliberate speed, which means they stalled like hell and took them a decade until Swan versus Char Charlotte Mettleberg really kind of break breaks that. In other words, you know, some places like Nashville and others began to bust before, but Swan is the one that really breaks it. Now y'all got to bust these kids because y'all go take all, y'all mean, y'all think all deliberate speed means never. That's why Bell writes the, what if they said y'all got three years and if you don't do it immediately, what, what Bell was really saying in part is we're going to use your white nationalism against you. You don't want to go to school with them? Give them the money. Let them have a bag. Oh, you don't want them to have a bag? Now they're next to you. And we can see how racist you are, your whiteness of your life. And he's gambling, probably they would have picked their whiteness and we would have got all the money and you would have seen uh, Morgan State versus North Carolina Central every year in the NC2A championships in every sport. you know. And all those people, we would have them also on the honor roll. Come on, understand. This ain't just about athletics. You know, I mean, it is at at, uh, at revenue generating black uh, places like the University of Alabama. I mean, you know, we love you. We love you till you step off the field. Or get injured, at which point you revert back to what you always were. But at any rate, what we see then is those lawyers start thinking about it. And these legal minds start thinking about it. And they're saying, you know, this ain't working out the way we want it. But between 54, 55, and 70, and the 70s, you get the Civil Rights Act of 1964, particularly Title VI. We'll come back to a minute because that's the one that says you got to, in order to, uh, to, uh, to support the 14th Amendment, equal protection and due process under the law, you've got to be able to protect these people's capacity to not be discriminated against. And that has all kind of implications for higher education, which is one of the reasons I went to law school, which is why let me fast forward to this. So 
Made it through high school. Grades were okay. Wasn't that serious, but, you know, okay. Went to Tennessee State because they had a great marching band. It's at home. And I wanted to be in the band. I was, you know, playing musical. I'm on, yeah, you know, HBC marching bands. Come on now. Got to Tennessee State and thrived. I never forget. Turned in my applications. Did had open admissions. I think the admissions. Uh, the, the, you paid five dollars to submit your <laughs> submit your application. Tennessee State. And the, and the tuition was so low at that time. I was working at Wendy's. I mean, you know, I could pay my tuition. My parents would help, but you know, I could pay too. I mean, so, and then, and then I said, okay, when I, I remember I, I turned my application, I stood on the steps of the student center and I thought to myself, my GPA is 0.0. If I get in, oh, you won't get in because it had open admissions, meaning it ain't that hard to get in. Okay. So I'm gonna have a scholarship after my first year. And I did no question. Cause see, here's the thing about it, y'all. Everybody know. Don't nobody ask you your GPA in high school once you get into college. Nobody asks you your GPA in your graduate program once you get into the graduate program. Nobody asks your GPA in law school once you get into law school or medical school or dental school. The, these are sequential things, and then you get to reset. And some of y'all really know, cause y'all get real new when you go to college. Change how you pronounce your name. Uh, you all you change your accent. I mean, you know, but it's what now people do, right? So I'm standing there like, wow, those four years are re- why I'm I'm in this conversation right now, cause I was blessed to get that last generation of the master teachers who came out of the Jim Crow South. And let me tell you about that very quickly because at Tennessee State, if you went to school in the South and you were a brilliant student like Jamie Coleman Williams and McDonald Williams, the director of the school communications, the department of communications where I was in in theater and the head of the honors program at, at Tennessee State, husband and wife, she was the first female editor of the African Methodist Episcopal Church Review, brilliant sister. You know, if you were a great student, you didn't go to school in the South. You went to your HBCU and then that if you went to a state institution in the country, the, the white people in the South would pay that institution to take you. That's why all those black people you saw with degrees from Ohio State, from Michigan, from Iowa, you know, even West Coast, UCLA, USC. They they were they, they were from Florida. They were from Alabama and they could not go to graduate school in the South. And the HBCUs didn't have graduate programs, so they paid them to leave. One example, okay, the man who hired me was the dean, one of the towering figures in higher education in the 20th century, the great James Ashley Donaldson. Got his PhD in mathematics in his 20s. I think he was 26 from the University of Illinois, Champaign, Urbana. James Ashley Donaldson got his, was from Florida, a little bitty ass place in Florida, <laughs> in Florida Panhandle near Georgia. James Ashley Donaldson got his bachelor's degree from an HBCU, Lincoln University. James Ashley Donaldson could not go to the University of Florida. He went to Illinois. Brilliant was the founder, along with his comrades, of the PhD program mathematics in mathematics at Howard University, became the chair of the Department of Mathematics, left there on leave to go to his alma mater to be the interim president to run Lincoln University while they did a presidential search. He just made transition uh, just before COVID. You know, I loved that brother. I loved him to the day made transition. He was, he, see, I used to laugh with Dean Donaldson. I say, Dean, they were making Negroes out of straight pig iron till around 19, maybe 60. Then he started making us out of wood and cement. I think they make these Negroes now out of paper or plastic. What do you think? And then he just, he, he had this voice. It was kind of high, but it was, he'd be like, oh, ha, 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 ha. you know, I can't agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I love that brother, but I'm saying that's, the, those were my teachers. You understand? They put the steel in my spine at the same time that I was there. 
They were in the courts. I didn't know it. Because Tennessee State was under a consent decree. What is that? At the district court level, that means you've got a federal judge supervising an agreement and an argument. Why? Because there was a case filed in the late 1960s by a sister named Rita Sanders Geyer. I got to meet Rita Geyer as well. I was on a panel with her uh, in, the, I think it was the 50th anniversary of the Geyer filing. Geyer versus, and then the name that your verses in these education cases in the South were the names of the governors at the time. So when I was in school, it was Geyer versus Alexander. Y'all know Alexander. He became a governor of Tennessee. Then he was a senator. And now he's gone. Now he got that hillbilly Marsha Blackburn talking about CRT. Yeah, it all connects. We're going to come to that. So um, Alexander was the governor. Geyer versus Alexander is a case where Rita Sanders Geyer and them were like, look, y'all, you know, desegregation is supposed to happen, which means we're supposed to get some resources under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is supposed to uphold the 14th Amendment. And what you've done in the South is create a dual system of higher education, HBCUs, HWCUs, which they call PWIs, but I call HWCUs, historically white colleges and universities. We love our HBCU, but we don't have the same funding as y'all. We don't have the same money as y'all. This is illegal. This is unconstitutional. So they went to court. And in case after case, the court said, yeah, but then now you got a remedy phase. The remedy phase is the problem because you don't know how to fix it. You could just give them money. Well, we were like, yeah, just give us money. And then they was like, no, no, we ain't gonna just do that. In the, in the Geyer case, this is where it gets interesting. In the Geyer case, the University of Tennessee, the so-called flagship institution in the state of Tennessee, they decide they're going to build a Nashville campus because they're in Knoxville. So when they see Alabama versus Tennessee in football, you know how many blacks they want out there? Is them Negroes running up and down the field. And if you want to see something to raise the hair on the back of your neck and scare the hell out of you, find yourself in East Tennessee in Knoxville, Nayland Stadium on a Saturday night and 100,000 people. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Then they hit the rebel yell. Whoa! Ooh, Rocky Top. Just a lynch mob. Every time I hear that rebel yell, I don't care. Some of y'all Atlanta Braves fans, when they start doing this, that's racist. You also hear, whoa, you hear that, whoa. Yeah, I know some of y'all grew up watching Dukes of Hazard. That's the social structure, just the good old boys, never meaning no harm, with a rebel flag on the top of their damn car. They brainwashed a generation of black children, thinking y'all was going to ride in the General Lee. Anyway, University of Tennessee said, we're going to start a campus in Nashville. We got Tennessee State. It's in the state capital. Y'all can go to Tennessee State. No, we think, what? That's a dual system of higher education. They go to court, guy or sues. And what happens in the late 1970s after a decade of litigation? Tennessee State becomes the first school in American history to absorb a white school. The University of Tennessee campus is absorbed by Tennessee State. And becomes the Tennessee State University downtown campus, and they rename it. I was I was actually student body president the year they renamed it. This was 1987. I helped them cut the ribbon. The great Avon Williams. Y'all look that name up because his law partner, his Jegna, was a man named Z. Alexander Luby out of the Caribbean. Z. Alexander Luby is the reason that I grew up in the house I grew up in in South Nashville because they, they sold it to my father. And then the white man sold it to a white man after he sold it to my father. And Luby had to go to court and get it because they would have had a restrict. They had a restrictive covenant. You can't sell to blacks. This kind of thing had to break the restrictive covenant. That's a whole nother line of cases. Shelley versus Kramer and others. Long story short, these guys were civil rights heroes. In fact, Luby was such a figure. They bombed his house. It was across the street from Fisk University. Still there. They bombed Luby's house. He and his wife were in the back. They blew up the front. If he'd have been in the front, he'd been dead. They hated Luby. 
So, hey, I see Ben Crump and these cats, and I said, listen, you want to impress me? You stand up and sound like Z. Alexander Luby and Avon and Williams, who became a state senator, who uh, I think it was, um, oh, it, was, was it, it wasn't was it was Alzheimer's. He had a very crippling disease. It impacted his speech, and he was in a wheelchair when I met him, and I helped him cut. They helped, I was along with the others who helped him cut the ribbon on the downtown campus. They hated Avon Williams in Nashville because he was a brilliant lawyer, and I remember his, his law partner was named David Dinkins at that time, and I, not David Dinkins. Not David Dinkins. His last name was Dinkins. I can't think of his first name. And that's probably good because I'm going to catch myself now. And I'm mindful of the clock. We keep going because critical race theory, we haven't left it. We haven't gotten to it. But watch how all this stuff converges. These lawyers after Brown in the decade between the 15 years between Brown and the 1970s, you see these major civil rights legislation victories all connected to those constitutional amendments. The 14th Amendment, Civil Rights Act of 1964. You've got to have these protections, including Title VI, which applies to higher education. You can't discriminate against them. You got to get them funding, all this kind of thing, right? The 15th Amendment, the right to vote, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay, you got to protect the right to vote. Okay, this is a problem. You got pre-clearance. Yeah, y'all been discriminated for a long time. So before you change anything, we got these laws right now. We got to see what you're doing. No more poll taxes, no more literacy tests, no more all this stuff that these hillbillies are now trying to put back in thanks to their hillbilly chief justice of the Supreme Court and all his white nationalist friends and a couple of complicit Negroes like Clarence Thomas, all that stuff is the stuff they wiped out or tried to wipe out with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is pursuant to the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution. All right, now, but after that, you get the taking our country back crew who are gonna engage in intellectual warfare. And so what you see then from the mid sixties to now is this shooting war between these legal scholars who are thinking about the nature of jurisprudence. I get caught up in it in the late 80s because when I go to Tennessee State, which I love and will love to the day I make transition and after as an ancestor continue to lift and support, I say I'm going to law school. Because what I find is in the consent decree to Guy versus Alexander, because once the case is settled, it's not settled. Meaning what? Yes, they absorbed the University of Tennessee downtown campus effort because you ain't gonna make no dual system of higher education. But what did they do then? UT Nashville tenured all its junior professors just before the merger. So when they merged, they had tenure. And them white boys turned around and became plaintiff interveners in the case. And they said Tennessee State is resegregating. They play black football teams. They ban as black. They call themselves an HBCU. In order for this to happen, no. We now say that the 14th Amendment means colorblindness, which means HBCUs must lose their racial identity in order for it to be colorblind. This is the John Roberts move years before John Roberts. So when you hear them start talking about, oh, this is we should be colorblind, critical race theories. No, no, we, we should all just be equal. It should just be one set of laws. No, remember the power of whiteness lies in its invisibility. Which is why we would say, and I was a student, I'm an undergraduate student. I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. So you don't want us to play black schools? No. Okay. And at that time, Tennessee State, I use the example only because I don't like to use white examples. It's a social structure analogy, but let people get it. Tennessee State is like the Notre Dame of HBCUs. We were in a conference. We were not SWAT. We were not MEAC. We were independents. We played everybody, Gramlin, FAM, whoever, black schools. So my thing was, fine, we'll stop playing the black schools when you start playing the white ones. University of Tennessee is not a white school. Hell yes, it is. It's fewer black people at UT than it is black. It's fewer black people at UT than it is white people at Tennessee State. And we had this one white dude who was in our class who anytime we would call a press conference, we would have him get up and say how much he loves it there. We did that for two reasons. Number one, to show y'all 
yeah, we're human beings. You know, we playing that game. And also, number two, you got this white kid standing up with all these black people around him, and that's sending the message. If you don't like us, you better not come here because this is what it looked like. Anyway, the point is because we really don't want you to come there. I remember arguing with the guy who became the governor of uh of, of Tennessee, Ned, Ned Raven Murder. I'm saying, you hey, man, this ain't high school, bro. You can't bust people to college. You pick where you want to go to school. So how y'all going to crack this nut? We just want the money. Years later, Governor McWhorter signed legislation, came through the Tennessee legislature, and Tennessee State got millions of dollars. We'll get there very quickly. And how does this tie to CRT? All right, let me fast forward. So I'm going to law school. We are going to become lawyers. My friend Deb Hurd went to Emory. Uh, Stephanie Vick was vice president of student government. They are down in Louisiana. I went to Ohio State because that's where Jamie and Matt Williams went when they sent them out of the South to get their degrees. Ohio State was known for it. In fact, the former president of Oakwood College, the great Frank W. Hale, he was the president of Oakwood, private black school, Seventh-day Adventist, Alabama. He went to Ohio State almost like a black missionary. And what did he do? This is his autobiography. He's an ancestor now. Angels Watching Over Me, the autobiography of Dr. Frank Hale. I love this brother right here. Frank Hale. Aya knows him. Aya Fubai, who was on last week. Yeah, she was very close to him. She spoke at his funeral, in fact. Frank Hale. Frank Hale went to Ohio State and set up something called the Graduate and Professional Visitation Days. You know what that meant? He said, I want the top five students from every HBCU. Ohio State's going to pay for you to come, pay for you to spend the weekend, ask you what school you want to be in, give you a tour, look at your test scores, look at your grades, and if you make the bar, we paying. That's how I got a law degree from Ohio State. Frank W. Hill, he did that for years. He left his HBCU as the president of the HBCU and went to Ohio State because they got more money than God, and God knows that it made money off black backs. He said, y'all don't give us some of that money, and I'm going to train the generations of it. They said, black people still getting degrees without debt. From Ohio State, law degrees, medical degrees, med uh, uh, dentistry, graduate school, all the disciplines because of Frank W. Hale. Anyway, so I went to law school. And when I got to law school, I figured out what it was. I was like, oh, that's where I met my first white friends, colleagues, classmates who were in the federal society. A couple of them are federal judges now. I ain't going to name them. They're on the circuit. And they, when I'm get to the Supreme Court, I'll name them. But I'm just saying, I clerked with them. I worked at law firm after my first year of one of the big law firms in Columbus. You know, they wanted me to come back. If I had been a different kind of Negro, you know, I wouldn't be here. I'd be probably in the Tennessee legislature or maybe in D.C. as a senator or something. I mean, because that was the thing. Right. That's what you do. No, I don't want to do that. That ain't why I came here. I came here to learn the law so I can cut all y'all's heads off. And, you know, I'm fool enough to. And this was during the hip hop era. Right. So I'm going to school. I'm going to school in class with the leather medallions with the Africa joint. I had a staff I'm like X clan up in this. One. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, when you do that, you putting a target on every day. And I want it. I want all the smoke. <laughs> you know, they're like, hmm, here come this. What is this? Uh, and then this cold call. You got class 200. They're going to call you random. So you don't know who's ready. But I know you're going to pick on me. I'm ready. I hope you call my. In fact, I ain't going to wait. Huh? <laughs> Shit. contracts civil procedure torts you know business association don't matter boom 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 i'm in intellectual warfare i don't like you i don't want to like you i want to learn this book better than you ever knew it even if you wrote it and i'm gonna use it to end white supremacy that's where i found the limits of the law critical race theory <laughs> because while i was doing that the federal society was getting its legs up and i'll never forget when a brother who was there with the lawyers who argued Brown, who worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund as a lawyer, a brother who thought through all that work as he was present in the middle of the battle, who became one of the most towering legal minds in American history, 
a law professor who resigned from the faculty at Harvard Law School because they had never tenured a black woman or a woman, a non-white woman, who then went out to the University of Oregon, came back to New York Law School. This brother visited our campus and he came to discuss a book he had published the year I graduated from undergrad and came to Ohio State called And We Are Not Saved. That's Derrick Bell. <laughs> when you start talking about my CRT, critical race theory, there are a number of names. And let me just put those in conversation now. If you want to read a nice little one volume, you can read the history of it. This is uh, the third edition of Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk's book, Critical Race Theory. It's good. You, you want that? If you want to get the reader, there's also a reader that has a third edition. This is actually a signed copy. Critical Race Theory, The Cutting Edge is a third edition of that. Critical race theory is now outside of the law. It's in all different kind of fields. Here's one on education, critical race theory and education, the ideology. Y'all can just take a screenshot or come over to uh, come over to narrative to get this critical race realism. It's in psychology. It's in education. This is a reader on critical race realism. Greg Parks, who's done some very important work, is one of the editors of that. I'll come back to those maybe in a second or two, but I want to get to this point now. Derek Bell. And I got all the other Bell. Bell. Bell's books are books I don't put in stores. There's some books I just carry with me wherever I am. And so I, I keep his stuff over there, including the one he did for Black Press. This is Afro-Atlantica Legacies, you know, very important. In fact, uh, okay. In fact, let me just show you one more on Derek Bell. If I can put my hands on it, if I can't, I will keep going. Oh, that's too bad. I thought I had a copy over here. Uh, Delgado and them, oh yeah. Der Delgado and them did a book called The Derek Bell Reader. So if you want to get his stuff, Derek Bell is a very important brother. In fact, I hope he's I hope he has his picture. Oh, yeah. This is him when he was around the time I saw him. <laughs> you know, his hair was great. The last time I saw him, his book, Ethical Ambition, he came to Philly and, you know, got a chance to, to sit with him again. I saw him several times between there, but that was the last time I saw Derek Bell. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Kareem. Lateral sclerosis. That was what Avon Williams uh, made transition from and had him incapacitated. It's funny how the ancestors have a pathway for you. I'll never forget. He had a speech therapist there and I couldn't understand it, but she could. And he had her come down. And then she said to me, uh, Senator Williams says that had he not gotten sick, you know, he would always give the student body president of Tennessee State a job in the legislature as his assistant. And he said he, he, he would have been honored for you to be his assistant. And I never forget. I said. I said, you. <laughs> you and your partner. Help my daddy save our house. Y'all want to know why I don't mess with the United States of America? Why, why we had to create an Africana studies framework? Who are Africans to each other? There was a headline in one of the national papers and they had Avar Williams standing up like this. And the headline was the most hated man in Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. That's the social structure. I never worked for Avon Williams. I didn't have to. Because when you see me, you see him. Sounds never dissipate. They only recreate in another place in time. Understand, understand that. Anyway, so what we're saying, let me, let me continue. So I met Derek Bell, my man, David Williams, who's now an ancestor, was a professor of tax at the time. And he was, he was like, he's the one introduced him. So we sitting there, we talking, so soft-spoken. Yes, you know, and uh, so, uh, you know, I think we have to rethink the way we think about the law. This book, and we are not saved, the elusive quest for racial justice. He's not the only one. Some of the other people I named are considered founders of critical race theory. I show you a table of contents. Critical race theory is the idea that. Okay, let me pause here. So I want to make sure that y'all understand this very 
kind of technical thing, but I'm going to talk about it very quickly in a way that's not technical. Remember what I said that after 19, after Brown versus Board and then the 1960s legislation, you see this pushback, this white lash, as Van Jones might say, you know, your broke clock is right twice a day, uh, white lash. What you see is um, you have a school of thought that has begun to form and around maybe post-World War II and then really began to take, get momentum in the 1950s and 60s. It's called legal realism. This is at law schools meaning the one that trains the lawyers and, and writing the law journals and the law professors. Legal realism is a sense that uh, legal realist the theorists and scholars believe that law as a concept, law is really about function. In other words, law, is it changes from, moment, from, from era to era and from situation to situation. Law operates as a function it's, it, rather than an abstract concept. The abstract concept cats are like the formalists, which is why I said it's Federalist Society. The fact that they were at University of Chicago, one of the cats at the University of Chicago, that's that's like a bastion of this law and economics theory. In other words, it's quantitative. You can you can apply a formula and get the same outcome. Now, of course, what the legal realists are saying is that's not true. So no, the law has to be malleable, has to shape to different situations in society. Now, that doesn't mean that the words don't mean what they mean, but you have to apply those words in the context of the society you live in. By the way, did y'all see uh, where that hillbilly in Tennessee? Uh, I can't just stop saying hillbilly because that's an insult to hillbillies. Um, <laughs> that It really is. I mean, I'm from Tennessee, so I, I know what hillbilly looked like. I mean, we grew up, we, we talked about D4 Bailey, you know what I'm saying? Who, who had a shoe shine shop down 12th Avenue South, you know, near who was the first black dude in the Grand Ole Opry whose harmonica introduced the Grand Ole Opry on the radio in the 40s. When you hear that harmonica sound like a train, that's the great D4 Bailey. But at any rate, um, you know, they make it say, I'm a black hillbilly, so I ain't gonna talk about hillbilly. This white nationalist out of East Tennessee was saying that the three-fifths compromise really was for ending slavery. The legal realist might say, well, is it flexible enough? And let me let me just show you, because that sounds crazy, right? So you, if you're watching commercial mass news media, they sound like guys crazy. Pause. <laughs> Sean Wilentz. Sean Wilentz, uh, the George Henry Davis, 1886 professor of American history at Princeton University. He's written a number of books. I like to read Sean Wilentz. I, I try to read it all. He can't read it all, but I try. And Wilentz made these arguments. He, In fact, he gave these lectures at Harvard. I think Henry Louis Gates may have invited him up here. I know Gates has that situation. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that. Yeah, yeah. No property in man makes the argument. This is no property in man. Slavery and anti-slavery at the nation's founding. Sean Wilentz. Wilentz makes the argument that while the pro-slavery forces at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia won a lot, three-fifths compromise, you know, a fugitive slave law in there, you know, it's kind of, he says, if you look at the language Actually, the anti-slavery people also won. Sean Wilentz would go so far as to say, when you see something like the three-fifths compromise, it, it creates a situation where you've got a point of entry for down the line ending slavery. Why? Huh? What are you talking about? Black people are not citizens. Yeah, they're not citizens, but they occupy a status somewhere between slave and citizen. Why? I mean, to count them at all, is a recognition of a status that isn't quite defined, but it's a point of entry for when you get to. Now, as a legal scholar, legal scholars, well, that's intriguing. But if you're in the streets and this fool in, in, for, out of Knoxville is saying, see, the three-fifths compromise was to end slavery, it triggers you because you know that's not what he means. 
But you also think you guys are in the universities creating space for these fools. And he says that, and a Walentz guy would say, well, you know, theoretically, well, I don't know if I agree. You know, but I don't like this guy because I'm not with him. Yeah, you are with him because guess what? He ain't never going to be in D.C. lobbying. He's never going to be on a panel somewhere. He's never going to be asked to draft legislation or review legislation that's been drafted. But you will. So you got to be real careful. This is why Derek Bell and them are around, because critical legal studies emerges out of intellectual warfare that is university based. It's academic and it's high knife fighting. Oh, my God. When we were in law school and after when, the, you know, we call them the crits. The crits. Look at the legal realists and say, we agree with the legal realists. Law is not formulaic. It is not frozen in time and space. Law, in fact, is about function. And what does Derek Bell say? Derek Bell said, legal realism is cool, but I'm going to introduce something called racial realism. What's racial realism, Professor Bell? Racial race, racial realism is to race relations what legal realism is to jurisprudence. What does that mean? That means there's no such thing as in a in a courtroom in a jury box when they say, well, a reasonable person, Derek Bell said, excuse me, a reasonable white person or a reasonable black person? Well, no, I mean, I'm a reasonable person. I'm, of course, there's no such thing as it's just a reasonable standard. There's no reason. See, the reasonableness standard is the linchpin of jury trials. In other words, you're supposed to determine what a reasonable person would do. But what Bell is saying is, there's no such thing as an abstract, reasonable person, you formulaic people. There's no such thing, you formalists. With racial realism says you got to introduce people's lived experiences. And let me fast forward. When I meet Derek Bell and I'm reading, and he says, you know what? Rather than go through the cases and get all y'all tied up in this case law as I'm making it now, I'm just going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to step outside of the whole legal universe and I'm just going to tell stories. I'm going to show you how racism works in America. So he made up a story, for example. In, in fact, the, the main character in his stories, these are all stories, and we are not saved. The main character, he makes up this lady called Geneva Crenshaw, this black woman, brilliant professor, where she's telling these stories. She's going through time and space, right? He got a story called The Story of the Space Traders. It's either in, and we are not saved, or faces at the bottom of the well. He did one right after this. You may have seen this, Professor Hunter. Do you remember that? Because guess what? They, they put it together, and they made it into a little episode on... Um, on HBO and something called Cosmic Slop. George Clinton was the host. It was, the story was this. The story was, what if aliens came from space and told the human race, we can cure every disease, we can have, y'all can live 150 years, all this kind of thing. The only thing we want in return from y'all is all y'all black people. Would humanity... <laughs> send black people to the aliens in exchange for all that. Hell then, yeah. that, that, that see, there I'm just going to engage in thought experiments. And then once y'all get into the debate, we're well, going to take what you're thinking and apply it to how these cases have been decided. That is the point of entry, racial realism for what becomes critical race theory. Critical race theory is the idea that in order to get people to see the limits of law, you have to stand outside of the law and pose questions that make them say, huh, I never thought about that. Right. And now that you thought about it, you can see how it's operating over here, can't you? Uh-huh. This is why it scares the hell out of the people who actually are talking about it and don't like it. Because you're going to force people out of their whiteness. I've been hiding behind this whiteness for 300 years. 
<laughs> you understand? So now let me fast forward. I, I'll bring this home very quickly. So I'm at I'm Ohio State. My, after my second year, I go clerk at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in New York. I'm supposed to be working on a joint appendix, a joint appendix. And a joint appendix is something you need to talk about that. That's a whole nother thing. But I was reading an article by a sister named Kimberly Crenshaw. Kim Crenshaw wrote an article for in the University of Chicago legal forum entitled Race and Sex, a Black Feminist uh, Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. I'll never forget because I'm reading that in 99 Hudson Street in Manhattan. I'm going to meetings. They had a big meeting because now there's a Mississippi case like the Tennessee case called Ayers versus Fordyce. My man, the great Alvin Chambliss, who some people think crazy. I like, I love Alvin Chambliss. He's arguing for the Supreme Court. Alvin Chambliss and them are arguing because in Mississippi, you got eight universities. They called the white universities comprehensive, old missing them. They called the black ones like Jackson State, Mississippi Valley. They called them uh, Alcorn where Steve McNair went to school. They called them urban universities. And, wh and what Chambers and them arguing is you've created a dual system of higher education. This is the same theory that they argue uh, at the federal level that we just saw in Maryland where they say, no, you got Bowie, you got Morgan, you got University of Maryland Eastern Shore, you got Coppin, then you got University of Maryland, and they're creating dual systems of higher education here because one of the ways we're going to remedy this is give the executive MBA program to Morgan and don't and, and don't let University of Maryland create one. That will allow white people to come or anybody to come that wants it. And then Maryland was like, yeah, we're going to create one anyway, sue us. So that's what they did. They just settled over $500 million, nearly $600 million. And in, 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 in Mississippi, Chambers and them won them about 500 million. I was in the meeting as after the end of my second year in New York when who walks in the room? Dinkins. Dinkins was a law partner of Avon Williams. And he was like, what you doing here? I said, I'm here to keep an eye on you. Because the battle in the black legal community was whether or not integration had failed and whether or not we should be arguing these cases on the side of integration, if it means the black schools will be overwhelmed and they will change from black schools to white ones. And it was, a, I remember sitting with Julius Chambers having this conversation, man, you argue Schmarr versus Charlotte Bedford. Is this what you thought would happen? But in my mind, I got Derrick Bell in my mind because what critical race theory does is have us even rethink, what was your objective? Was your objective of quality education or to be next to white people? Because whiteness is a dangerous thing. We've seen how it operates, Tim Scott. I mean, we see what happens when they pluck you out and, and take your wiring out, put something else in. So I guess what I'm saying is that I read Kimberly Crenshaw's piece. It was very fascinating to me. It's very interesting. And then, but I also figured out the limits of law. So I finished my law degree, but then I went into Black Studies because I was spending my weekends with Tony Brown and them, who's at Hunter College, which you can. I was uptown listening to John Henry Clark and them. So I'm thinking more and more, my job should be teaching. Because I don't think we can get what we need to get in this legal framework because it's never going to be displaced. And if it's going to be displaced, it will be from the outside in. I don't believe we can get it from the inside out because even the most uh, 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 sympathetic non-black, even the most sympathetic white still got this belief in the system. So when you get to something like a 1619 project, that's why I say 1619, 1776, the same number in my mind. Because what you're still back mapping is American exceptionalism. This is not, so the critical race theorists might say, you might say, well, 1619 is critical race theory. And that is true in this sense. Critical race theory is so broad now and it's overflowed the law to go into all these other areas that you really can't say what it is or isn't. I like Randall Kennedy said this the other day. He was talking about it. He said, you know, the, the Harvard law professor who was on faculty with Derrick Bell and Charles Ogletree and others. And by the way, let me pause here as I kind of wind it up because I didn't get to critical race theory. I did, but I want to make sure that everybody understands. 
racial realism then kind of gives birth to critical race theory. And some people like Richard Delgado, I have my Howard students. That's why I say, and this is where I end with the race law and class, uh, change class I teach because I'm glad I, I've been teaching that class now for a little bit over a decade. Um, in fact, the first one of the first, the first group of students I had included a law student named Angie Porter who helped me imagine that class, you know, and, and, and uh, oh my goodness, uh, Keila Crane who worked for the NBCP for years. And that's when I got a chance to talk to Alvin Chambliss again, who I hadn't seen because in that meeting at the NBCP, I was in as a law student, uh, Alvin Chambliss came to the meeting and he was roasting them. He said, I can't believe you Negroes in here talking about integration like this. And that's not what I'm fighting for. He's always fiery. So I finally, years later, I said, man, I you were speaking my language in there. He said, yeah, man, because I had done a continuing legal education thing on Title VI. And after I finished, he came up to me, he said, see, I was waiting on somebody to talk like that. I said, man, Alvin Chambliss, you my hero. We started talking. He said, yeah, this them crazy Negroes. Because see what Title VI did, you go into court arguing that you want to dismantle dual system of education. And in many ways, the workaround is, we just gonna overwhelm you with white people. We're gonna raise the admission standards. We're gonna, you know, oh wait, no, that's not, uh-huh, uh-huh. So you had to be very, very shrewd about it. We want the resources, but we wanna lose our identities. So if you're gonna argue integration, be very careful because the, re the, the reply might be, okay, integration means you need to be non-racially identifiable. What does that mean? It means white. But they said non-racially identifiable, which is quote unquote neutral. It's it's very it's very very serious. So when I read Kim Crenshaw, this is the allegedly the first introduction of the word intersectionality, race, gender, class. You know, I get the concept, but that's theoretical. So for me, Africana studies, what's the method? How do we apply that in the real world? And so we need a place to stand to think to act with informed decision-making. So when you hear me cry, say things like, I don't have a dog in that fight, what I'm saying is that, you know, I had to be able to follow in the footsteps of those who are saying, I'm not gonna disaggregate identity if it means that you now will say, okay, well, we have class and gender, and that means as much or more than race, and it all works together. Well, how does it all work together? And there's been some brilliant writing on it, but to me, it's theoretical, because in the real world, we live those things simultaneously. All right, so at Howard, now, yeah, I'm speed through all those 20 years and then this. So now I'm at Howard. And when I teach this class, I here's how I address critical race theory. Um, I use that Africana studies method. What is the social structure we find ourselves in? So I start with the foundations of um, uh, Western jurisprudence. I usually start with a chapter from this book, James Brundage, Medieval Origins of the Legal Profession. Brundage's book is very good because he said, there are several institutions that endure in, a, in, in world history that come out of this period. And I won't get too deep into it because it really talks about um, it talks about Roman history. Then it comes to the so-called early Middle Ages and the medieval church. By the end of the 11th century, he gets into this. He says you got the corporation. You got the church, the Christian church, the European version of church, church. You have the law. The law is an institution that operates and you have the education system, chiefly the university, which is a whole nother conversation. So everything, much of what we do at universities, including these high-ass robes we're wearing in May, comes from the church. It's ecclesiastical. The ecclesiastical courts give birth to the legal profession. That's why you have a bar that you have to pass the bar in terms of your test, but that's literally you're approaching the bench. All this stuff is coming out of the church courts, right? And so when they when they formalize it, which means you got to have a place to train lawyers, that's where the law schools come from, you then begin to formalize these systematic relationships. Proctors, you've got, uh, well, anyway, get too deep into it. 
once we've established that that is not the way they did it all over the world, whether it be Asia, whether it be throughout Africa, not even the Muslims did it that way, not to mention all the societies that pre-exist, Rome, including the Egyptian, we go back in my class, then we bring that system we do have through the common law, England, and uh, we skip over the Atlantic into the colonies, settler colonialism, and I take a big chapter out of this book called The Legal Universe, uh, Vine Deloria and David Wilkins. They wrote a chapter called uh, Three-Fifths of Other Persons, African-Americans and the Law. Uh, that chapter is about 50 pages, a little, little short of 50 pages. And we trace now how the settler colonialism operates. That is the social structure we're working in. Now, the governance structure asks, who are African people to each other? What critical race theory does is ask the question, what were you doing? How are you thinking about this? How are you thinking about it in the context of the social structure you find yourself in? That's why it is so dangerous to people who don't want us to think about the social structure. And that's why, to end, I was trying to think of some ways that it works. Okay, yeah, I'll end with this. I'll end with this. This is this is the hard end here. Um, as I said, critical race theory or the idea of asking different questions, thinking I never thought about that, storytelling to jailbreak, and then taking those experiences and putting them in the real world outside of the law because now it has gone past race realism and critical race theory in the law it's now in all these other areas in education for example it becomes what does curriculum look like where we think about all the other stories that haven't been told all the other experiences in psychology it looks like you're going to counseling but they don't even know the first thing you should ask a black person is how your mama know <laughs> it's in medicine. Okay, you you got all the technical skills, but you didn't even ask about that lady's granddaughter. So I, I know you have to now. This is what Bell is saying. It, you, there's no such thing as an abstract human. You have to occupy it in public safety. Uh, Jennifer Eberhardt, who wrote the, uh, who got the MacArthur. Oh man, what did I do with Eberhardt's piece? Oh, 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 oh. I thought I had a copy of it around here, but I guess I didn't pull that. That's too bad. She did a book. Oh yeah, here it is. <laughs> Jennifer Eberhardt. She wrote a book called Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. Eberhardt. So when you see that, that jury in Minneapolis that Angie, you and Angie talked about, and you and all the other lawyers talked about as well. What are we worried about? We're worried that when they say reasonable person, that defense attorney is trying to get one person over there to think reasonableness means him, means white. I'm a white man, you're a white man. So it's kind of like, and you see now they're 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 going to they're appealing on the idea that they gotta throw the case out. Why? Mm -hmm. Because one of the black jurors uh, went to a rally. Well, what the hell? You had a whole hillbilly horde in 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 uh in, in, in Washington D.C. They tried to overthrow the damn government, and y'all ain't been no. Nah, but he went. So, what you would argue in uh, critical race theory, public safety, see even jury selection, administration of justice, all these areas that cause the law inside the law. Contracts. When you go to negotiate for a car, Kim Crenshaw and I would agree with her in, other, in terms of intersectional analysis. If you are a black woman, then are they going to give you a different interest rate? Are they going to try to move you into something else? In torts, what does it mean to ass for assault and battery? What does it mean when you kick in the door saying, drop your weapon? But at the same time, you're saying drop your weapon. It's like, drop your pop, 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 pop. What? You would never do that. I mean, public law, which means constitutional law, statutory law. How are you interpreting that statute? When you say that this is colorblind, what does that mean in real life? Because now you've stripped this institution of this protection, but you said you were being fair. Property law, the same kind of way. You know, what does it mean when somebody comes in and does what you, you've reported on in your show? And even here, we're talking in your radio show and then here as well. You come in and get an appraisal and it's half a million dollars less 
because they found they, they realized you were black. And then you said, that can't be true. Let me get another appraisal. Take all the black pictures down. Leave. Get my white neighbor to come over. And the appraisal is $500,000 more like it was in the Bay Area a few months ago. This is critical, all critical race theory. And that's why they hate it. Because it's introducing the idea that we're human in the world. And what we're not going to do is orient our entire lives around your way of looking at things. Your way of looking at things is dying. I'm going to stop with that. For, for so, and, and I didn't put out the clarion call on Twitter for questions. So I'm going to take Vicky's. Uh, do you think we should have a curriculum designed in public school around critical race theory? And at what age? Uh, thank you for that question, Vicki Locklear. Uh, and as, as she po poses that question, and again, thank you for that awesome breakdown. You and I were talking, I've been talking with you, Reyes and Carl and others about, you know, how we shape narrative. Uh, you know, we, we use syllabi, you yes. know, we have curriculum, but it's all also through a white lens. Yes. The way in which we teach in academia, high school, grade school, kindergarten, uh, higher ed is is conditioned, not how we learn. You know, one of the very first conversations you and I had, you described, you know, the African teacher around the tree with yes. the children and the conversations which led to Socrates emulating that system. And it's what we do every Saturday is what we're doing in narrative. And as we start to think about, even I had this conversation with my class on Friday, I'm like, you know, I can measure what you can regurgitate, but I really can't measure what you learn. Mm -mm. And so the learning process in, in this critical race theory, when you said it, it resonated with my soul. This is a distraction. This is about elections coming up. This is about rallying ignorant people around a concept that they can't even define a process so that they have this crew of folk to say, these people are trying to take away your right to be a human being and they're trying to make you feel bad about being white. That's all propaganda. So I don't even really want to spend a whole lot of time, even though we did, because we had to frame it. Really? Um, Once it's done, it's done. That's right. So, you know, this is not going to be, I, I haven't talked about it not one minute on my radio show because I'm like, what do we do with this? That's right. Our, our job has to be to to uh, remember and unlock for our children, for ourselves, for our family members, for our community, what we need, the tools we need to build the world we want to live in, free from this oppression, free from this 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 this, this racism and all the other things. And I think we can do it. So you know, once we know who we are, we got value. Look, they need us. You know, the 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 notion, the real truth is, if the Martians came and took all the black people. How long would your country live? <laughs> how, how long would you have a world? That's what Du Bois said. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm quite comfortable that, you know, we have everything that we need. And if y'all want to work together, great. Um, but we don't, you know, necessarily have to beg for acceptance or validation. And like you said, I wish that they had thought about that separate but equal. Give us the same money. Give us the same opportunities. Give us That's the same right. things. We don't want to sit next to you. And I don't want to define myself by your by your your lens. I don't want to define well, my I, I don't I don't want your proximity to shape the way I view the world, whether you sitting there or not. That's right. And the shot we have at it. So it's I didn't pull this book. I have it over here. I usually keep it around close. I, I keep some of the, the veterans, the Bell era veterans close. One of them is Judge Robert Carter. Robert L. Carter, who's an ancestor, he was the youngest member of the Brown versus Board of Education uh, uh team, the lawyers. The great Spotswood Robinson and, and Oliver Hill and, of course, Thurgood Marshall and others, Jack Greenberg. He wrote his 
memoir, A Question of Justice. And one of the things that is raised is in, in, in his memoir, and then Bell raises this as well, because Bell was a junior guy in those conversations as well. You know, what was the significance of that doll test? What about the white psyche warmed to the idea that black children picking white dolls was something that then meant we must integrate? Was there, I mean, and, and I'm saying this, did it strike a resonant chord? Because not just because of pressure from external pressure, foreign policy, read Carol Anderson's book, Eyes Off the Prize, read much of what Gerald Horn. Gerald Horn says what happened in 1954 was a truce between the black, small black elite and America that couldn't keep being super racist with China and Russia out there and Africa and Caribbean getting free. So, I mean, you had to do something. But psychologically, and this is Zora Hurston, I think, making this argument among many others. And I think a lot of black people, regular black folk, I don't want to, I don't want to even think about white people. But so why do you think, you know, and then when you go back to Plessy, go back to the dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson that was written by uh, Justice Harlan. Justice Harlan says, as far as I'm concerned, the white race is the dominant race and will be so for all time. There's no harm in us abolishing separate but equal. In fact, it is the constitutional thing to do. People cite Harlan's dissent and saying, see, Harlan was right. Look at Brown. No, did you read the whole? This is what Bell does. And that's what I love what Bell does in textbook. He writes out that. I have my students read that dissent. Why? Because Harlan is saying, hey, white people are the best. So it don't hurt us to have black people next to us. In fact, what's the implication? If you let them go do their own thing, they may stop thinking we're the best. I mean, it's it's just, I mean, this is why in Africana studies, we have to develop, we had to develop a framework that had that social structure category so that we could isolate it and get it out of the way. So now we can think about ways of knowing science, technology, movement, and memory. Because, um, and what happens in critical race theory conversations is y'all haven't made a distinction between a social structure and a governance structure. So you keep trying to come up with ways for these people to see you and you making these arguments. And so that's why, no, I don't think critical race theory should be the foundation for any curriculum unless you define critical race theory very specifically. See, I don't think that we should be grounding curriculum in anti-racist work because it reinforces the idea that we exist somehow to serve this common humanity and none of us ever been to. You should ground a curriculum, as you say, in learning about human experiences. Du Bois wrote this in the 50s and he says, what the Negro wants is not segregated education. What the Negro wants is not integrated education. What the Negro wants is education. And so what does that mean? That means that my grandmother know as much as your grandmother. That means if you talk about George Washington, then I'm going to talk about Nandi and I'm going to talk about Yasantiwa and I'm going to talk about uh, the deacons and the deaconesses in my church. You know, George Washington, you're not my dad. <laughs> and if you want me to learn about George Washington as the father of our country, I will answer this question on the test. And at the same time, I want to know about all those Africans that he had on that plantation that did all the work, did all the innovations, created all the stuff and freed him up to go ride around. And I wanna know about them 5,000 black people who fought for the British against him. And the 30,000 in Virginia that ran away. Critical race theory, that ain't critical race theory. That's a structure that allows all of us to be present in the conversation. Cause what you're engaged in is myth-making. Now, I, I wanna mention one other thing in terms of directly in terms of critical race theory. I also have my students read an article written by Richard Delgado 
called Liberal McCarthyisms and the Origins of Critical Race Theory. It's in the University of Iowa Law Review. I forget the exact pagination. But, um, and look, by the way, this is like inside baseball. Maybe five people want to read this, but just so, because the, the thing, the also, the also thing I have a problem with is, because this is what you said, you know, we all are human. We all have the capacity to learn, but that don't mean that everybody is at the same stage in our learning process. And often what happens is people come say, I don't agree with that. I'm like, great, let's talk about it. And then you walk through something and they say, okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I still don't agree. Well, well, what, what do you have to say about what I just said? Oh, I just think all oh, that's a, no, that's not, no, 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 no. Learning requires acquiring some content knowledge. So this is what Delgado does. And I have a lot of respect for Richard. Delgado. I mean, obviously all these cats are brilliant. I really didn't get into all the theoreticians, but I encourage you to look up Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, to look up Patricia Williams, to look up Lonnie Guineer. Lonnie Guineer has a book called The Tyranny of the Meritocracy that's just brilliant in terms of thinking about reimagining education. Look at Bob Moses and them who are saying education should be a constitutional right. You could argue that that fits somewhere maybe under the rubric of critical race theory, depending on how you look at it. Uh, my my dear friend Imani Perry, she and Mark Hill were talking about it on uh, uh, Black uh, that, that that television network they have. Black BNC. Well, yeah, it, it was it was quick, but 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 Imani taught critical race theory when she was at Rutgers Newark. Uh, she's a law professor. She has a JD, and of course she's on faculty at Princeton. Has written about this. But the, where I get off the boat with critical race theory, as I said, ultimately in these conversations it almost always comes back to whiteness. What do I mean by this? I, and this is why I have our students read this. Uh, have Delgado says, back in the 60s, when that first generation of Black students, in terms of a little bit of a critical mass, are jailbreak and get into the white Ivy League schools, Cornell, Yale, or the, or the Ivy adjacents like Berkeley and them. When they get there, Delgado says they encounter a handful of radical white scholars. Uh, Mark Trubeck, Stalton Lynn and them at Yale, um, out at uh, Berkeley. Oh, I forget the guy's name at Berkeley. Anyway, says those are the ones who are engaged in this battle. They're coming out of the critical legal studies argument. They're arguing against these Cold War liberals of the 1940s and 50s. And so none of them get tenure. They get fired. They get sent out into the wilderness and they end up different places, but they are the ones in this liberal McCarthyism, they're purged. They are the ones who kind of light the fire under the generation. In fact, they say, well, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw was a hasty fellow at University of Wisconsin-Madison and she's the one, you know, but, but she had one of these professors and he was the one who kind of brought her in. I'm like, see, y'all always figure out a way. And so I asked the students after we read it and go, and by the way, I usually then introduce some ancillary readings. I just pulled a few for y'all to see. Here's one of the best books on the University of Chicago because it's the law economics piece. This is John Boyer. These were the old guard cats and they still hold a lot of sway. I remember when I went to U of C last time I was there, in fact, just before COVID hit in February, um, I was there and, you know, I'm over in the economics department and they have all the Nobel prizes up for all the Nobel laureates. And, you know, I like going to Richard Posner. I mean, I read all Posner stuff. Posner's brilliant. But this law economics piece, when I was in law school, that's what they were fighting about, too. But I'm coming to the point in terms of curriculum, how this works. Um, Yale. Yale was very important. Kingman Brewster was at Yale. This is Yale Law School in the 60s. This is Laura Clayman's book, um, Kalman's book. What you see at Yale is very interesting because they cultivate a group of blacks. Uh, in fact, Brewster brags about it. Um, what's uh, who? Uh, this is around time. In, in undergrad, you had cats like Kurt Schmoke, uh, Henry Louis Gates. 
I mean, brilliant young cats who are very young and Yale is trying to get their mind around liberalism, but they also want to get rid of these super white liberals over the law school and stuff like that because they don't want these black kids who are coming in, many of them first generation, to become radicalized and they terrified that the white students will too. All right. And then finally, in terms of universities, Clark Kerr. This is his two volumes on the University of California. Clark Kerr is a fascinating dude because, of course, California set up the three-tiered system. You got the community college system, then you got the Cal State system, then you got the UC system with the flagship school, Berkeley. So when Kamala Harris leaves Howard, she goes out. Her father's at Stanford, which is an Ivy adjacent, but she goes to University of California Hastings, which ain't the flagship. The flagship is Berkeley. And I'm thinking, hmm, how did that happen? Anyway, but the point is this. Her also pushes back on the structural fine. How does it have, what does it have to do with KTL curriculum and whether critical race theory should be taught? What you find is that, and what I ask the students after we read, I ask them, now what's missing in here? And often they say, no, I don't know. I said, well, I'm gonna be quiet till somebody tell me what's missing. And invariably, because they are students at Howard, one of the handful of HBCUs, like University of North Carolina, um, North Carolina Central University, Texas Southern University, Miles College in Alabama, Florida A&M School of Law. I mean, we got black law schools. They say, you know, he didn't mention Pauli Murray. Right. Who else? And then, then the flood comes. He didn't mention Charles Hampton Houston. Nope. He didn't mention Spotswood Robinson. Nope. To say that critical race theory came out of white Ivy League schools in the 60s ignores the intellectual insurgency of HBCUs that goes back to the 19th century. What you're calling critical race theory in terms of interrogating America, even if you're only talking about law schools, you can't handle conversation about critical race theory and not bring in, I mean, read, uh, oh, 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 Groundwork, uh, Jenna Ray McNeil, her book Groundwork on um, uh, Charles Hammond Houston, read Margaret Ed's book, We Face the Dawn on Spotswood Robinson and Oliver Hill. These geniuses, or read all the work. Polly Murray wrote her own biography, Proud Shoes. I mean, read what she wrote. Um, mm, 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 mm. Patricia Bell Scott over there, Fire Lady, uh, what's it, The Firebrand and the First Lady, the book Jane Crow. Oh man, Polly Murray. So I'm saying I have to say this if you're going to build a curriculum, K 12, don't call it critical race theory. In my mind, call it Africana studies, which means what? Come on over the narrative and let's build some curriculum. Yes. And yes. then when you go out in your PTA meetings or you're a teacher and you go out, oh, I should say one other thing, because this is out of respect to all those teachers, because I don't want anybody to think we're reinvent we're not reinventing the wheel. Memory, movement and memory. The first thing you should do, I think, is wherever you are, ask a very basic question. Was there any work done before I thought we need to do some work? And I promise you, if you're in a city of any size in this country where black people were, you're going to find some black school teachers wrote curriculum decades ago. You're going to find all those curriculum. And then if you really want the mother load, go back to them segregated schools or better yet, go to the Negro History Bulletin and go get them lesson plans and see if you can use that as a model. And that's what we're doing in narrative. We just going we just rewrite the whole thing, but we're going to use what we did because I don't like mm, I, I know I keep saying, but I should. Mm, this is where I need to tie this off. What I don't like. And there are very few things I would say I just do not like, categorically reject in terms of internal conversations, governance structure. What I don't like is young scholars that come out of that same structural arrangement that I just gestured toward with these and many, many other books. There's 20 more that I could pull just here on this. Get William Clark's book, Academic Charisma. And, and anyway, 
William P. Carr, a Academic Charisma and the Origins of the Modern Research University. That will give you a good overview. What I don't like is when you cultivate young black minds, either undergraduate and in graduate school, and then they go out and write dissertations, and then you get in book contract with white publishers. By the way, Jacob Carruthers used to call it slave rebellion research. I call it field reports. In other words, you got the stuff that's helping free us, and then you got the, here's what they're doing today. Here's what they did 30 years ago. Who are you, where are you publishing that? Where are you, where are you going with this book? I mean, it's a field report. I mean, he called it slave rebellion. Here's where they revolted last time. So now we know, what are you doing? But, but it isn't because these people want to do it. It's because you cultivated people. And then, of course, they lead with, this is an unknown part of American history. What? Unknown. This is a little, I am rewriting. You're not doing anything other than confusing people. And guess what? The people you're writing about, you don't even know them. And they ain't going to read that anyway. Now, fool like me going to read it. Me and Professor Hunter going to read and talk about it. But part of the reason I think that, you know, at least I had to do it and we we're in conversation about it is because I read those books for the footnotes and the source. No, I, no, I somebody's got to do it. But, yeah. you know, but understanding and having been in publishing and knowing what I know. Yeah, not yeah. reading that and because it's not for us. It's that, not for us. That's to make, uh, you know, it's for other people. So, and, I, and I'm sad. I'm sad because I'm not. This isn't a question of character. I'm not questioning anybody's character. I'm not questioning their intelligence. I'm just saying that we individuals don't beat institutions. And so, if we're going to talk about K twelve reform, education reform, don't don't put the label critical race theory on it. Let's go build something that they can't label. Use your language. Use your memory. Use your experiences. And then they can't put. See if 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 people can put a. In fact, that's one of the reasons why you see in a lot of times portraiture. And Africana, Asia, a lot of different places. How you portray the face is very important. The Yoruba have a saying, and uh, the rough translation, at least the way that I read it, and then I talk to Yoruba speakers to help me understand it. That which has a face can be controlled. So in other words, if you could put a label on it, you can move it around. Now, what is it? People say, well, everybody has a face. No. think Check out the Yoruba word, itutu. So when you see uh, Yoruba statuary with faces, you don't see this. This is what you see. And if you don't think that we haven't continued that lesson at these graduations, come on, take a picture. All right, y'all ready? You ready? One, two, three. <laughs> now we'll take the clown picture too, but for the picture, the Negro will wipe their face off. In other words, we're going to be cool. It tutu. It tutu. And if you get in there acting a fool, come on, Shante. Come on now. All right, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. We serious about that. Same thing with CRT. If they can put a label on it, they can move it. Let's just write curriculum grounded in our governance structure. And we let the rest take, it's going to find its way into CRT and everywhere else. So if you are not in narrative, go there with the K. Please. Please go there. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a live book club. We won't be here. We'll be there talking about souls of black folk, but not really because we already talked about it. So the book is there. Read the book. The conversation Dr. Carr and I had about Souls of Black Folk, folk are, is embedded into the book, so you can enjoy that. And then we're going to have that conversation that we're talking about, starting with what W.E.B. Du Bois had envisioned 100 years ago yes. about what we should be doing. We're going to start that work in a couple of weeks exclusively in narrative. So 
Let me say thank you uh, to everybody. Thank you, everybody uh, from all over the world. Appreciate you. Thank you, the moderators. Thank you, Kareem and Donica, Renee, all the folk out there, Yara, who are gathering up the trolls and getting them out. Thank you all the thumbs up. And thank Dinkanesh. Dinkanesh is the uh, Amharic word for the, the students in East Africa when they found the bones that we now call Lucy, unfortunately, in the social structure, it was around the time that Elton John, or the Beatles, and the Beatles had recorded Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, LSD, and they were out there, out there tripping, and that's why they named that sister Lucy. But on Mother's Day, the Africans who were out there working, they gave her the name in Amharic, which translates into wonderful, and that is Dinkanesh. So, happy Mother's Day from Dinkanesh to now. Everybody ever walked the planet came out the womb of a black woman. So, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> hey, love you, Dr. Love Carl. you. All right, see you next week. See you.